Hello, everyone. I'm here with a special guest episode with Aaron White, and I'm super excited about this episode because when Jordan and I were brainstorming the ideas and the format of Cinematic Underdogs, we were trading different podcasts that really inspired us and trying to turn each other on to you know different ways and tones and moods and just structures of podcasting. And he gave me two. He gave me Hollywood Babble, which is Kevin Smith, and Spin Chicklets, which is a sports podcast that's really popular. And I gave him Unspooled and Filling Film. So just a little bit of paying reverence to your podcast. I have listened to it for a few years now. It's just one of the best podcasts out there on film. Always solid, always entertaining, always earnest and sincere. And I really love it. So welcome to the podcast. Why, thank you. I am honored to be in a club with one of my movie film critic crushes, Amy Nicholson. I mean, that just <laughs> makes me really happy right there. <laughs> I absolutely adore Unspooled, so that's really cool. Unspooled's great, right? I wasn't even sure I was going to ask you if you listened to it. Amy Nicholson is brilliant as well. And yeah, one of the few podcasts I still try to listen to pretty regularly, actually, is Unspooled. Same here. I listened to the entirety of the AFI Top 100 and I've kind of fallen a little bit off the podcast path with them now that they've gone into like these little segments, but I'll get back on it one of these days in the summer when I start running every day and listening to multiple podcasts. So yeah, I love that podcast. But what I loved about your podcast is, first of all, it mirrors mine and Jordan's own podcast in which Killing Film is between two really close friends that dates back to childhood, I believe, right? Patrick's your best friend. He uh, is, how long have you known him? Yeah, so we grew up together and I guess we met in somewhere around junior high, Christian camps, Christian church uh, events. And we had like this little group of friends that we would run together with. And I ended up going to high school with him for one year out of my high school years. I was in three different high schools around the area for various reasons that I don't want to get into. But uh, he and I got really close during that one year. And it was really an interesting relationship because we didn't stay connected very much after graduation. I ended up leaving going into the Navy. And I would say probably a decade. We talk about all the time how like a decade went by before we even reconnected and we met again via Facebook or something and just started talking and saying hi. And we just kind of fell back into it. And our relationship just immediately blossomed into this thing that it was more than it had ever been when we were in high school even. And so, yeah, it's just grown and grown from there. Uh, and it goes way back. And you're right. I think, you know, there's an element of that. When you know someone deeply, it creates an automatic charisma, automatic connection for the hosts that you, you can't replicate when you're just finding a co-host off the internet or something like that. And I like that about us. So we may not be the smartest dudes in the room, but you're going to know that we you know, can go back and forth because we are kind of coming from a very similar perspective. Yeah, absolutely. You just can't fake that rapport that you have with someone you've known so long. And it's very organic between you and Patrick. And what I loved about it was you both emote so much about films. And that's pretty rare, especially amongst guys. And I, it's just very raw. You're not afraid to be a little vulnerable or show how a movie affects you emotionally, as the podcast name points out. But you stick by that motto, like episode to episode. I've always appreciated that. And those are like some of the most poignant and profound moments of it. So I really love that. I do have to say that we do win in terms of me and Jordan and I, we haven't talked to almost at all on this podcast about really how far we go back, but we were born six days apart on the Holy same moly. Street. Yeah. So Whoa. 
yeah, he's basically family. <laughs> That's very cool. Yeah, um, very cool. But uh, why I wanted to bring that up is we've had huge periods as well where I lived in Asia for five years and I went to a different college and we actually didn't even go to the same elementary school for the most part. Uh, so we saw each other a lot, but we've had big gaps in our life where we didn't see each other all the time. Yet, you know, you have these, I'll call them lacunas, a big word, but you have these like missing time periods or intervals. And when you come back, I sometimes relationships just flounder or sometimes they resurge with like a new vitality. And I feel like each time we come back, it's uh, with a new curiosity and we have a new dynamic in which he's interested in new things than I am. And it, it creates uh, energy and a vitality that's, that's exciting. So yeah, that's pretty um uh, interesting to hear how you and Patrick had a big hiatus in your friendship and then came back together after that. And I'm just curious, was film one of the things that I guess created that bonding? No, no, <laughs> no. Okay. Was it military like no. experience? <laughs> no, it was just the fact that we came back together at different points in our lives. He was engaged and he had just come out of a really tough relationship. One of the hardest long-term relationships of his life. He was getting married soon and I actually was divorced early on. So I'm twice divorced now. And, and we just sort of, I think, were able to come to each other at a point in our lives where we really needed another close male friendship. And we both are big proponents of male friendship. And we, you know, we'll call that out in movies all the time because I don't think it's just depicted enough that males can be close friends in the same way that females are usually shown. And, and you need that. Dudes need that too. And we were able to be that for each other at a time when it was critical. And when you're sharing the deepest points of your heart with someone, it really can connect you to in a way that bonds you. And it just did that for us. And eventually the film thing kind of came out of that. It, do you want to hear that story about how I feel in film? Okay. So I will go into that story. Film for me has always been a part of my life. I've always been a movie lover, but I've always been a lover of all things. In fact, I'm a bit obsessive to the point where I can't ever do anything like partially. I, I have to go all the way into my interests. Dangerous and problematic at times. Video gaming was probably my bigger lifelong interest. I wanted to do some video game review writing in my early or in the early 2000s when I was a young adult. That was really my goal was I really wanted to get into that world. And that transitioned into the late 2000s. I started up movie blog. I'm trying to remember what it was called. I wish I knew. I have it bookmarked somewhere, but it had a interesting name with geek in the title or something. But uh, the critique geek, that's what it was. It had to rhyme, it had to be a rhyming because I was like all about rhymes and cuteness. So it was the critique geek. I still like that, by the way. And I just started writing movie reviews and just randomly. And I don't know how good they were. Probably fine. They weren't anything special. And I enjoyed it. It was just for me. It's a good time. And that kind of fell off. Uh, in early 2010s, I discovered podcasting. So I kind of came late to that. And I found a podcast locally here in Seattle one of two podcasts that really got me started. One of them was based out of a church at the time called Mars Hill Church, no longer exists. Mark Driscoll was the pastor, um, has gone on to other things, but this person named James Harleman was a an associate pastor at this Mars Hill Church, and he did a film podcast series called Film and Theology. And he would take a movie and he would break it down from a theological perspective. And I found that supremely fascinating. It was something that interested me because of my own faith and then my love of film. 
And I started just binging his episodes as well as film spotting with Josh Larson and Adam Kippenar. And those guys would get me through a very long commute that I had at the time. And what I loved about their podcast was I would find myself talking to them as I was driving down the road. I would just chime into the conversation as if I was there. And I realized that that was the kind of show that I gravitated toward the kind of the kind of connection that the hosts had that brought me in as if I was right there in the room. And so, you know, I would share these with Patrick over time here and there, and we would talk about movies. And really in, I would say, I think it was 2015, we decided we wanted to go through a TV show together. And we decided we would go through Battlestar Galactica because we'd never seen it. And what we would do is we would watch a couple of episodes a week and we would use this app. We still use it today called Voxer, where you can send voice messages back and forth and we would watch an episode and then send our thoughts to each other on a voice message. And then we would listen to them and respond and go back and forth. And we went through the entire series of Battlestar Galactica this way. Fast forward, that leads up to, it's still happening, to 2016 in April. Aaron, a Batman superfan, goes to see Batman v Superman in the theater for the first time. Patrick, a Superman superfan, also goes to see Batman v Superman. We come out of the theater... Both of us are blown away and absolutely love the movie. We go home, we get online, and it is nothing but trash and just negativity and awful comments everywhere. And I was like, man, I hate this. Why does nobody love movies anymore? Why can't people just focus on the thing that they enjoy? And, and so I'd, you know, I'd been having thoughts about like, oh, I could do the podcast thing because I'd been listening to him for so long. And I'd, I'd kind of hinted at it to him. And he's got a toddler at the time, or even I guess a baby at the time. Gosh, his kid's seven now. And, you know, a wife and all these responsibilities. And me, I had my kids every other weekend, but I'm single and I'm past relationships at, my, at this point in my life. So all I got to worry about is cats. So I got all the time in the world. He didn't. And eventually I kind of talked him into it. I was like, let's try it. Let's just record something and see what happens. And so we did. We just kind of got on the mic with this idea that we were going to intentionally tell people why a movie was good. That was how we started. And we started with Batman v Superman. And it just kind of caught fire from there. And like I think all podcasts that are long running will do, you know, over the past five years that we've existed, we have evolved. There have been changes to the format and to the focus a little bit, but our heart of our podcast has always been what you called out there. And that is, we're never anything but sincere. We're going to be honest and we're going to be open about our feelings and how we react to a movie emotionally. Sometimes that's going to be the overwhelming crux of our conversation. And it's not, we're never going to talk about the cinematography or the acting, or the sound design. And sometimes those things are inherently important to the emotional reaction. I think that that's actually a critical element of sports films, good sports films in a lot of ways. And so that will come up. But generally speaking, yeah, it's just something that, you know, I kind of roped him into to try and then suckered him in and got him hooked on to the point where for five years he was going strong. He's currently in a sabbatical. He's taking a little break for three months. He needed a pause and he was able to do that. And I'm grateful. But yeah, that's the long winded story of how kind of feeling film came into existence. This is all super exciting for me to hear because I jumped into your podcast Midway through, I think my first episode that I ever listened to, fittingly enough, was a sports movie. It was Rudy. And I think the second 
was First Man, which we kind of had a back and forth about today. <laughs> I'm not sure which one was my first. It was one of those two. But I, I got in, you know, like in the, I don't know what year that would be, maybe the second year or the end of your first year. It was kind of maybe early on, I think 2017-ish. So a little bit into it. And I, I'm always curious because I didn't go fully back to the very first episode because you had so many episodes and you, you're very, very productive as a podcast and very That's diverse. <laughs> yeah. I'm crazy. <laughs> you are. And just so everyone knows, I think you're on three or four straight days of podcasting today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I'm, I'm in the middle of a six out of eight day stretch, including the guest appearances I'm doing. So yeah, it's a lot and I'm going to need a break over the next weekend, but I love it. I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say other than for me. You know, podcasting is my thing. It has pushed video gaming to a minor hobby for me. You know, reading has fallen off. There's a lot of other things I like to do, but movies and podcasting and, and the ideas of like, ooh, I want to create a new podcast. I mean, I can't tell you how many ideas I've had that I haven't acted on. I, you know, did a one season podcast in the video game world last year that was really cool. I was able to interview a whole bunch of personalities in video game journalism and video game development, kind of get my feet wet and dip my toes in and realize pretty quickly I couldn't sustain it. But, you know, I just, I really enjoy talking mostly about movies. It's a blast. And so I, I don't produce content. <laughs> I hate that word, but I don't produce content just to do more, but I do more because I want to talk about everything. And if I had all the time in the world, that's how I would operate. Yes, I'm the same way too. It's the impetus behind the podcast is to explore things deeper, to have a purposeful conversation with friends, with peers, and to make some sort of, I don't want to say tension or suspense, but give it a, an importance and significance that pushes you a little bit, right? There's a, a level of, I don't want to say theatricality, but heightened cognitive performance and creativity, I think, that happens when I'm in a podcast mode because I know I'm on the spot a little. And I, I love that. I love that excitement. Uh, it gives something to my you know, cognitive energy that really boosts me. And why I wanted to bring up that you've been on a bender is that it is an athletic thing. And I was listening to your end of the year 2020 recap episode, and you were telling people that were listening to that episode on Filling Film that, you know, this is a, a weird experience in which sometimes you're not quite on, sometimes you're a little off, sometimes you're a little tired. And uh, as only a consumer podcast for years, I didn't think of that so much. But when you start to do podcasts and you either multiple hours long, and there's a lot of elements going on in which you have, you you know, research going into it, and you're trying to tackle all these things, and you're excited to tackle all these things, and new things pop up. Uh, it, it could be uh, exhausting, and it's pretty athletic of you to do six and eight days. It reminds me of Joe Buck, and he had a crazy run. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In which he had to, I think, do like 10 straight days of MLB playoff games last year because of the crazy schedule due to like the COVID restructuring. Yeah, was condensed. Yeah. And then he had to go and do an NFL game on his one day off, which is absolutely insane. And I just love those stories. I love people who speak and who use like rhetorical flair as their performative art. And whether that be a radio host, a sports announcer, podcast host, even a like TV host like Carson Daly. When I grew up, uh, I've always been attracted to that. So uh, that was one of the key motivations for myself to experiment with the podcast form. So I really enjoyed hearing about the genesis of Feeling Film and your, I guess, coming of age into the world of podcasting from video games to 
uh, you know, church groups dissecting films, which was really interesting. I was wondering if you watched Aronofsky films during that <laughs> or like if you just watched whatever and you had a really flexible I One guess. of the cool things yeah. about film and theology and this particular group, and it, there's a couple film and theology podcasts that I am guest on and I actually still listen to. The great ones or the good ones, I guess I would say, is they don't pick and choose movies that you immediately associate with some sort of Christian theme. That's the point of them, is to take any movie. It's to take La La Land, one of my favorite movies of the last 20 years, and figure out is there something in this that we can take out of it and make an application to our, you know, faith beliefs? It's just to enhance. It's not to like replace or say a movie's good or bad. It's just to kind of mine a little bit of something extra out of it, which is definitely not something I'm capable of doing in every single movie or that I would feel comfortable about trying to do myself. But, you know, every once in a while, it can be a lot of fun. And I get edified by listening to that because it's not like mine. And that's, kind of the thing, like a cinematic underdogs, for me, you are the kind of podcast that I will listen to. I have circles now of fellow film critics and fellow podcasters, and so many shows are very similar. And I don't need to listen to them because I'm already, A, doing those movies every opening week, or I'm covering the same type of format. So I'm going to seek out something that's very niche and very specific that appeals to my interests, um, which is what I love about your show, is that it hits one of my own personal interests so hard. Well, thank you. And uh, I knew that right away when I listened to your like Rudy podcasts, your Moneyball podcast and your Creed and Creed 2 podcasts, which was great. That was one of my all time favorites. I still remember running along the creek to that one. <laughs> and just uh, your enthusiasm for that movie was mirroring my own like day after high after seeing that film in the theaters. And I, I do appreciate I was kind of hoping you would say that that theological dissection of films was looking at movies that were completely secular like la la land or well let's just throw another one out there titanic or something right because i think yeah. that's a that's a more interesting project because it's not handed to you and i was thinking of my last guest which was justin Koo, and he talked about how he appreciates art house cinema and cinema that's really enigmatic and there's lots of mysteries that are there to unpack like say bergman or antonioni but on his podcast he does blockbuster tentpole films because there's more freedom to unpack what you can and there's more creativity there and by taking things and finding things where it's not actually presupposed or already implanted you have more say and you have more versatility and i really like that reflexivity that he had about his reason for loving blockbuster movies and how he has an interpretive angle that really fills a niche that is unusual. And I, I feel like it's kind of a similar thing with uh, that theological approach to cinema, especially movies that aren't inherently biblical, right? It'd be too yeah, easy absolutely. to just do like the passion of Christ. That'd be so easy. Yeah. Um, it'd almost be boring because like it's on its surface. Like you should know what that it's already telling you very specifically. The whole point of the exercise is to be watching a movie. And in, in my faith from that perspective is to always be a mindful consumer and to know what you're putting into your body, into your mind, and taking the culture that's around you, no matter how secular or non-religious it may be, and using it to continually, like I said, edify yourself and grow and think about things that are beyond just that culture. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty brilliant. I mean, it's sort of what I do emotionally speaking with, you know, feeling film, too, is just to make people deal with their reaction and acknowledge it. My big thing is always that, your movie that you hate is going to be somebody's favorite movie. 
And you have to acknowledge that we're going to react to things differently. And so while I may have a poor emotional reaction to something, if I have a reaction, there's value in unpacking that. And if you unpack why, and you don't just leave it on the surface of like, this made me mad, and so it's a bad movie. Why did it make me mad? What did it do to me? Why was that? What happened in my life that made me think it was bad? You know what I mean? And then through that, I believe, and from the feedback I've gotten, it seems to work, is that other people sense the same thing. And they either relate to what I'm saying and what my story is or my co-host story is, or they'll start to think about their own reactions in a different way. And they'll start to unpack that. I can tell you, it can create a bond with a movie that you didn't have before, especially with my format. When you're talking about it from an emotional perspective, a lot of times you'll come out of it going, man, I like that so much more because I've now found this thing that connects me to it beyond just a surface level. I enjoy it as a structural piece of art. Yeah, I personally appreciate uh, the whole constellation of perspectives on any piece of art. I really do. I love when people find so much joy in something I was pretty neutral towards. It just shows the limits of my own perception. It shows the limits of my own emotional resonance, the wavelengths that I'm not on. And it's up to me if I want to make the effort to perhaps try to learn how to have that affective response to be impressed in the same way. Similarly, when someone's super critical about something I love, it just makes me have to, I, don't, I hate the word defend because it's too strong, but it, I think it fortifies my love for something because I have to confront a challenge. If something is never challenged, then it'll just evaporate over time, in my opinion. So I, I actually genuinely, and I'm not like even trying to be disingenuous, always smile and get excited when there is the opposite opinion of mine. And I cannot find it any more alien to be truly stubbornly angry, or I would say almost like some people, maybe the emotion is envy, maybe it's insecurity. I don't know what it is that really breeds animosity in people when someone doesn't love what they love, or if someone critiques what they love. I mean, it, it is frustrating to agree when you truly, truly love something and no one else does because you want to share it with someone. That's one thing yes. that's frustrating. And number two, I would say a frustrating thing is when you can see that something is truly flawed, but the culture is, everyone is kind of parroting each other because something's hip and no one's actually being authentic in their relation mm -hmm. to it. That's frustrating to me beyond belief. So those Absolutely. two things I go after really hard. And I try to have growing out of that. I'm trying to just be curious about those situations, but that's a tough thing for me. I, I get actually pretty sour and a little bitter in those moments. And I get, I get like uh, in the crusader mode and, you know, you know, I'm going to preach to the whatever, you know, you know, what everyone gets that I get the ego inflation there. And I want to, you know, get into arguments and get combated with people. But besides those, I, there are many moments when I, I get a sincere joy to, to talk about disagreement in film. And uh, one thing that both your forum and your your podcast says, like uh, you and Colas too, don't always like the same movies at all, but you're very cordial about it. And I, I just, the rapport is, is really genuine where it's not like, oh, how can you not like it? It's, oh, why don't you like it? And, oh, that's interesting. I, I, I didn't think of it like that, right? It, it's not personalized. It's not trying to ad hominem. It's a really strong thing. And one more thing I wanted to brush upon is that going one more time to the, your theological film experience is I actually had a course in college, which was existentialism in film and literature. And it was really evangelical existentialism. It was all Schrader and Scorsese. 
<laughs> right? It, you think it would be Schrader and Scorsese. Maybe Tarkovsky. Tarkovsky. <laughs> no, you, he, on point, right? But actually, it was a little more mainstream. It was the third man we watched. We watched Great. Hiroshima Mon Amour, and we watched a Terrence Malick film because he was friends with the professor, actually. But yeah, but pr- pretty cool. But uh, it was it was pretty similar in which we were dealing with these really esoteric concepts. And by taking them out of cinema, it, it was a very fruitful endeavor. And I loved it. It really turned me on to film in a whole new way. Between that and this is a really snobby sounding class, but my Godard class was amazing. Like I'd never gotten so deep into the intricacies of meta text in film. So those two things just blew my mind. But I also found it interesting to hear that it was like radio and things or driving and you would talk to the people speaking yeah. uh, because that, that's all of us, right? It's like wanting to be in the conversation that you hear for so long. You, you develop that urge. I have to find some platform where I can, I, I can be in this, I can collaborate that really, I think has to, it has to like have a little bit of agitation for a little while, I think, to really get the passion to put in the effort to do something like a podcast for as long as you've done it, which is you're at, I believe I looked it up, 273 episodes, which main is- episodes. Yeah, that's main. That doesn't count. Like we had a bunch of mini so labeled and then all of our like FF plus side content that we do. So yeah, I mean, I have well over 400 actual episodes. That is unbelievable. That is extremely extremely prolific and you do post-production you do edit you clean it up which i do it all so (laughs) yeah i i do it all i always have i mean patrick's maybe done a handful of stuff over the course of our time but it's all me uh, with all the editing and all of the production and planning and, and we do share notes taking responsibilities at times but it's a lot of work it is and it's passion uh, though it's passion and you do get the benefits of really i would say probably you maybe not know it but building your speaking skills by listening to yourself so much in that post-production space just the more you listen to the podcast the more you're going to really embed these memories in your in your long-term parts of your brain right <laughs> um, definitely I, which is which is something like i think that some of these little films like the big green even though it was a huge film in our childhood it already had dissipated over time when we came back to it it last spring Jordan and I and now it's going to be there for another 20 years because of how much time I spent editing that because it was one of the very first ones where I was still learning my the chops of it so all the little details are just are really embedded whereas most films we watch and we're immediately on to the next one on Netflix so completely different experiences what is your I guess regimen on podcast day this is a fun question behind the scenes I'm trying to think about it more like sports think about how athletes prepare for a game, they listen to music or something. Do you have any unique regimen or do you just go about your daily life trying to watch as many movies as possible? Is there anything you do to prepare for a podcast? You're making me think I should do that actually now. That'd be kind of cool. I watch as many movies as possible. And generally speaking, and I, you know, this changes throughout the year. I'll go through periods where I'll get really into a game, a video game, and I might My movie numbers might drop a bit while I'm focused on a game during the week or whatever. But for the most part, I'll watch anywhere from, I'd say, 10 to 15 movies a week. At the peak, like this January, all every week in January, I hit like 20. Part of that is because I have the ability to, because I'm single. Part of it is because I work one day from home still. And just the way that my work schedule is able to be manipulated somewhat. I literally will plan my days by like, 
I've got this three hour block. I can get a movie in here and then I can get one in here. And then, oh, I want to watch this basketball game in the afternoon. But then after that, I can get this movie in. I don't sleep enough. So I'm trying to allow myself in the grace to drop off a couple of those movies every week so I can get some more sleep as I'm getting older now. It's starting to catch up with me. But yeah, I just cram in as much as I can. And it's really, again, it's not out of a place of like wanting to put out more content. It's I genuinely just enjoy it, whether it's I want to watch a whole bunch of new stuff, but I also want to do a whole bunch of rewatches. And so in order to do both, the number balloons. And so I just watch and watch and watch in pandemic world. I'm taking notes on my laptop while I'm watching. And this was a conversation you had with Don Shanahan on an episode you did with him. And so at my house, when I have my laptop up and I take notes, I actually go way more into plot than he does. And the reason for me is because as I take the notes, it's funny, I don't really even go back and use the notes. I have them up during my podcast and I almost never refer to them. The act of writing down almost everything that happens in the movie embeds it in my brain in a way that I'm able to then recall when it comes time to talk about it down the road. And when I'm in a theater, I have a notebook. Uh, When I'm going to press screenings, do the same thing. Press screenings, when they come back, will cause a serious hit in my numbers because of travel time to the theaters and travel back and just kind of waiting before the screening starts. You just can't do everything at an efficient pace that I am now, which I really enjoy. I'm also a slave to numbers and data. I adore them and, and I love like crunching them. And so with Letterboxd, I'm a big fan, I do a partnership with them where I can promote them and just love their site. And so their stats page is something that I'm looking at every single day. And I'm like, ooh, what is my average compared to last year? And what am I going to hit this year? And what, ooh, what's my hundredth watch this year? I should make that special. Like all those little things. I'm just completely obsessed in the film community. When it comes to like a routine though for podcast day, I don't have any kind of routine other than take my dog out to potty as close to start time as I can so that he will be fine and pray that he needs to take a nap while I'm recording. Those are my my routines. But other than that, what I can tell you is I'm torn. I love watching a movie as close as I can to the podcast because it's fresh in my head. And the more films I watch in between say the queen's gambit and the podcast on the queen's gambit then i feel like that conversation and my ability to recall information and talk about it starts to just kind of degrade on a slope and so i like to do it as close as i can the problem with that is that i also am an absolute organizational freak i work in the admin world and planning and organization are my things efficiency is my thing and so to do that I need to have note document ready well in advance so that, I mean, like I need like three days notice. I'm one of those people that like, if your phone is at 80%, it's dying. It is freaking dying. Find me a charger right this second. And I will get anxiety because my phone's at 80%. I mean, it's not natural. It's not probably good or healthy, but it is what it is. But I'm like that with this too. Like I need to have those notes ready to go two or three or four days in advance. That conflicts obviously with the side of me that wants to watch something at the very end. So I'm always kind of going through this internal battle with the movies that I watch and the planning. I I use documents. Uh, I have a massive spreadsheet for my podcast hosts and I that plans out midweek. You know, these are the screeners I've requested. These are the ones that have come in. These are the the expiration dates when you got to watch it by there's a ton there's a ton man and it is not for everybody it really is not for everybody i recognize that i'm incredibly lucky to be able to have the free time that i do to put into this but it's definitely where i get the most enjoyment in my life outside of my kids
All of this absolutely fascinates me. I love to hear about this stuff, to hear about the spreadsheets, to hear about your love of stats. It shows a new space for movies that we never really thought of before to this degree. And it's the digitization of our cataloging of things, which is something we love in multiple fields. And we love it in sports. We love stats in sports, right? You can get in any sports group and they're going to argue and debate all day various stats from years ago. Like look at this stats of Michael Jordan's MVP season versus Kobe's MVP season, blah, 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 right? Um, and I just was having fun here that this is a sports podcast and thinking of your letterbox interest in the, the stats every day and trying to uh, conceptualize a sort of fantasy letterbox league somehow of like which movie's going to get the highest ratings, and things like that. I don't that know, would I'm be just, amazing. There is it? one on box office. It's called FML, Fantasy Movie League, and I was involved in it for several years when it first started. I would give out Fandango gift cards in our Facebook group for that league. The problem was it got to the point where there there was a a high-level game where if you were able to read the latest data report that came out like on a Thursday morning right before the, quote, roster locked, then you would be able to beat anybody that was just playing casually. There was no way for it to actually be fairly competitive that way, and that is what turned me off. Whereas, like, you know, I'm not going to lie, we're recording right now. I have some tabs open with information and and my notes. I also have a tab open tracking my fantasy basketball team because I want to see my stats. Right. And so that's more of like a, you set it in a week and you forget it. And then whatever happens, happens. Fancy Movie League, unfortunately, wasn't able to really be like that. Uh, and I fell off of it. But yeah, something like predicting letterbox rate. Don't even don't even say that. Don't get me excited about something like that. I'm just time. Trying... <laughs> no time. But I know you're now going to be brainstorming on every like ounce of free time you have of like how to make that work. <laughs> I think that there's something there, but it's still percolating. It's, it's not quite emerged in my mind how this would come into fruition, but I, I think I think we're on to something. But I really also liked hearing about your defense of taking notes of the plot because you could throw away that paper, right? I totally understand this. It doesn't matter that you're retaining this for the greater good of the world or even for of yourself. Because as Don said, all this stuff is on Wikipedia now, basically, or somewhere. But the act of putting in the effort of writing it down, as I was saying just a minute ago, the act of editing a podcast embeds things into your long-term memory. And that is priceless. That is something you cannot shortcut. And so as much as we could shortcut so many things, and you seem like you're interested in that to a degree, which we all should be, because efficiency is a good thing. It could have its downsides, too much efficiency, and you start to like lose your savour for the pleasures of life. But efficiency also allows you to optimize how much time you can experience pleasure because, you you know what I mean? You, you organize your time well, so you can do the things you love. So it's, it's a weird trade-off. I was wondering, have you ever heard of Tim Ferriss or his podcast? That doesn't sound familiar, no. Mm-hmm. He's a totally different realm, but he has this book called The 4-Hour Workweek, and it just reminded me of some of the things you were saying. He's really nice. into biometrics, uh, so he gets into really like biologically tracking things, but he's also into just creating a schedule that yep. is hyper, hyper efficient, but it sounds like you're already on the same parallel path as him, so you don't even need to. I was just curious if you were aware, because he's like the famous kind of... No, but I, I might have to check that out. It, it is a trade-off, though. It's a trade-off, like because I don't get to enjoy every single movie I watch because there's so many movies that I'm crunching in, and because I'm when I'm taking notes for some of them for podcasting purposes, I don't get to just sit back, turn up the surround sound, put my arms out, and just 
enjoy it and take it in because you have to be engaged in a different way when you're taking notes. And so there is something that you lose in the experience that way. So it is not a perfect thing. There's no perfect way to do it. And you always kind of have to be aware of, I think, when you're communicating your feelings for a movie as well in a review, whether it's written or podcast form, that you take into account your situation when you saw that and how you saw that. What was your mental state when you were watching that movie? And these things really do matter more than maybe we ever mentioned them, you know? And so I like to do my best to consider those, but it is what it is. And you, you roll with the best thing you can for your situation. It is crazy how paramount these things are and how little we do talk about them. Because if you go into a movie sleepy or with a headache or lethargic, you're going to have an utterly different experience, right? As opposed if you just came off of a nice run, you've had a really delicious meal and your energy is at peak level. I shouldn't have used the run metaphors we talked before the podcast, you ain't running, but I'm just giving my own anecdote that would work. But whatever it is, right? If you're eating your favorite candy, it's going to be different than if you're hungry, have an appetite, and there's no food immediately available, right? If you're in the theater, you don't want to miss anything and you didn't get enough snacks, something like that. Whatever it may be, our emotional disposition, it has a huge impact on our experience. That's why many people and us who rewatch and experience art multiple times, you will be able to track that. Uh, maybe I just wasn't in the right space because I just watched this thing again and it was amazing, right? Maybe I rushed it. Maybe I was cramming too much at that time. Uh, the other thing that I thought was really interesting, what you're saying is the hard part of uh, modern life is the surfeit or the glut of possibilities, right? With all the streaming services, just whatever you want to watch is at your immediate availability. If you're tech savvy at all, pretty much, and everything is great. And so how do we create a balance? Because I went through a period where I was watching, like I said, my weekend, I would get like seven or eight done. It had its benefits and it's, ne it's negative. And I, I, the only reason I don't lately is just because of my uh, routine is totally different. My structure is different. I have different responsibilities. I would actually love to do that again in many ways. But it, it was interesting to be self-aware though of there was moments I would be like, okay, I am no longer even enjoying so much because I am worn out or I'm so overexcited to see so much that somehow I need to trick myself into not thinking about other films. I remember one period of my life, every time I was watching something, all I could think about while I was watching is like the next films I'm going to watch. <laughs> Do you ever have yeah. that where you're just- Yeah, like, absolutely. I struggle against it. And I have to tell myself like it's a time to take a break or stop. If it is a movie that I need to focus on for review purposes. Now- if that next movie is Jason Bourne, because I'm going through the Bourne, you know, ultimate set and I'm just working my way through them, not podcasting. That's when that movie needs to come on. But it's not fair if it's a screener or if it's something that I'm watching with the purposes of reviewing on the podcast, because those I make sure that I clear the head and give those the full attention that they deserve. And it helps when you know you're going to have to you're preparing, right? When you know that you're going to be talking about something, it ups the magnitude. And so that's another thing I do like about podcasting now is when I watch those movies, I have a higher level of alertness in the same way that like, I loved my movie pass or my AMC stubs pre COVID because being at the theater for me, it's number one perk was there was just something about the event of going and sitting in that seat and having no escape that it upped the ante of my like cognitive interaction with it. I was there, I was present 100% where at home, it's much more diluted. It's much more disseminated my, my focus. It's, you know, my cat meowing and, oh, I don't want to get into all the, the trifling minutia of what goes on in the house. We all know what distracts us, but yeah, it's a com two completely different experiences. And uh, when you have 
purpose, it gives you higher focus. But yeah, I, I don't think that it's a bad thing either to, to watch a lot either. I love that. And like I said, I'm not, it's just an interesting discussion always, like the balance that we all have to do in this new world where consuming content and that makes it sound, sound so dry, so scientific, or so statistical, but it's not only that, like these are great experiences that as people can hear our podcast, we have serious uh, emotional affective responses too. But uh, there's an interesting conversation around like, how do we balance? How do we manage, uh, you know, our psychic and uh, emotional and biological energies to have maximum experiences? And it's endlessly a fascinating uh, discussion um, that I, I, I love to have. And especially with people like you, who I appreciate for pushing it because you just love, I can feel it. Like you went through the whole Bourne series this weekend, correct? Well, I haven't got to Jason Bourne, but I'm hoping oh. to after this, because I squeezed in the last one that applies for you and I this afternoon. So I've manipulated my time schedule in order to get myself one extra film. See that seriously, like that's what I do. I will say one other thing, one last thing about this for me, yeah. the thing that I love almost as much as actual podcasting. I love interaction. And this probably goes back to like, I live alone. I don't have a spouse or a significant other at this point in my life. I have a very close circle of friends, but social media for me is where I go to be able to talk to people about movies. So if you follow me, I'm going to post the vast majority of what I'm watching, I'm posting about, and I'm doing that because I love to talk about it with other people. And that's also why the Feel and Film Facebook group exists, is for people to come and whether you watch 15 movies a week like I do, or whether you watch one movie a week, come post about the one movie you watched. Guess what? If it's Tron Legacy and you just watched it for the first time and you're like, wow, that's a freaking cool movie, you can post about it. People are going to want to talk to you about it. And that's what I love. I love engaging with people and having those conversations. And so I'll go on a string of thematic purpose. Like that's how I usually end up doing things. Or sometimes it'll be tied to an actor or director, but a lot of times it's thematic. I'll watch one erotic thriller and then like, there's like 10 or 15 erotic thrillers I got to go through and people will see me posting about them and that will trigger something in them. And they may go check out something that they find interesting or that their, their attention was drawn to. And so it's like being able to share that with people, that communal experience, and then just have the conversations about what did other people think about this movie. To me, that's like the highlight of my day every single day. Yeah, I love uh, how we think alike there and how we're similarly obsessive, right? You get one film that like excites you in a way and suddenly you're just adding 11 new films <laughs> into your queue. It's like a Hydra. You cut one movie off and three more grow back. Yeah, it, it never ends, right? It's, it's just an endless supply. One thing that I've fortunately enough over time have come to accept is that I'm never going to consume everything. That was literally one of these uh, recurring thoughts of despair I would get, especially as a teenager. I was really into literature too, which is even harder because books are so long, so time consuming where I'd be like, I'm never going to be able to read everything. I'd walk into a library or Barnes and Noble and feel despair, feel like this <laughs> dread of like, there's so much I want. And it's a greed, right? It's a form of greed that has its healthy aspects and instincts because it's, it's, a, it's a desire, it, which is, it's life affirming, right? To want to read, to want to see, to want to experience. But learning to check that has been really important. Learning how to create the balance of like, yes, I, I, I'm going to add everything. I'm still going to want to, but I'm not going to dwell upon it. I'm not going to let it ruin me. I'm going to try to experience as much as possible, but I'm going to try to also focus on the here and now and always remind myself. And things like writing when you're watching back to your, your practice. I just wanted to also bring up that I always tell my students, I'm also a tutor and a lit tutor, a reading tutor, that even if you underline a book or if you write tiny notes, 
that are completely gibberish. There are really profound and significant neuroscientific studies already that show salient results of this weird relationship between like using your hands, digital dexterity and um, mental awareness or alertness. So I do think that's interesting too. The act of our hands doing something, whether it's crocheting, keeps our mind more focused. Yeah, Maybe not if you're texting. That's probably the one thing you don't want to count. (laughs) Yes. No, no, that's a great point. Actually, a totally different thing because it's your mental focus distracted into the hand. So that's a good point that I didn't bring up or clarify well enough is your, your hands have to be engaged in something that's either thoughtless or that helps you tether your mind to the thing that you're trying to pay attention to. So if you're taking notes upon a movie, then you're going to, you're going to lose aspects, right? Because your visual aspects are going to probably be a little bit disrupted, but you're constantly going to stay focused in the sense that you're going to daydream a lot less or enter reveries, uh, you know, about mac and cheese less. But if you, you know, you're texting, you're a lo- it's a lost cause, which you just got to pause the, the thing. <laughs> you know, that's the bane of everyone's existence. And, you know, it's hard because as we both like to be like, uh, we like to talk about films too and stuff. And we like to be engaged. Like Letterboxd is really engaging, great conversations. Your your Facebook group's interesting, right? So it's, it's just always, these are hard balances that we're all adjusting to and learning on the go. So this has been really great. I'm, I'm glad we've gotten some insights into both the history of filling film, which I've always been curious about, and your personal routine and regimen. I want to segue now to one of my most exciting parts of this podcast, and it's your top five sports movies. And I know you love sports movies. I've known it since I listened to the Rudy episode and the Creed episodes. I know you're excited to get into these. So I'm just going to hand the mic over to you and let you start. All right, cool. Well, yeah, I'm very excited about this. I have long considered a podcast that does exactly what you guys do. So when I discovered that you guys were doing it, I was really excited, a little bit sad because I was like, well, that takes it out, you know, and now it would not so cool if I do it. But, you know, it's awesome that it also takes that off my plate and I get to enjoy it and consume it. And I still get to be a part of it like this, which is cool. So thank you for having me on. But yeah, absolutely, (laughs) I love sports. And, you know, even as video games for me being a big thing that I've always, always loved, the reason you just hit on it when you were talking about books and consuming them and how long they take. A movie is two hours. You know, I can get a full breadth of a story and experience it in two hours or whatever the time frame is, but it's less than like 20, 30, 40, 60, sometimes a hundred hours in a video game, right? Sports is my secondary thing. And I have always been a humongous sports fan. I do not have a history of really playing sports. I played some tennis in high school, but I wasn't really good at tennis. I played baseball coming up through about junior high and I was, you know, fine, whatever, but I was never an athlete in any sense, but I've just always been a hardcore fan of pretty much all sports at some point in my life. I feel like I've enjoyed, first of all, college is my thing. So I grew up in the South. I'm from Arkansas. And so for me, college sports, my connection to Arkansas sports, that will always be more powerful than any professional team that I root for. Even the ones that I've rooted for professional teams going back into my childhood, I would root harder for the women's Razorback gymnastics team than I do for the Los Angeles Lakers championship that happened last year. Even though I've been a Laker fan since the Magic days, right? It's just a thing. You know, I watch every single Arkansas basketball game of the year, typically everything that's televised that I can get my hands on. 
they have baseball games they're playing right now. They're in the third game of the season in a major, amazing tournament in the college baseball season. And I would be, you know, I'd have that up if I could somewhere, but it's not televised for me without paying for some stupid thing. Anyway, point being is love college sports, love all sports. So the sports movie, you know, creates this incredible mixture of that experience. And for me, you're going to find on my list, it's interesting. I was listening to some of your other guests and listening to their lists. And I love that because it's fascinating to hear what different people gravitate towards. A lot of times you can kind of tell there's a style that people like. Don Shanahan gravitates towards films that he grew up with, films in the heartland where he's from, etc. That's not me. I gravitate towards highly produced, incredibly dramatic, and extremely emotional depictions that are incredibly inspirational. That's what I'm going to lean towards uh, with characters that typically have flaws that need to be overcome in some way that are raw and a little bit more real and authentic and lived in feeling. Those are the films that I tend to lean towards over the old baseball movies that I grew up loving that are extremely nostalgic or whatever. So that being said, let's get into my list. I got a lot. The other thing about me, I'll, I'll just preface this is I cheat. So I'm feeling film. We have bonus content. We do sometimes our, our like top five whatevers. I don't ever have five. I'm terrible, terrible cheater. So I've cheated like crazy for this list too. I'm going to start with an honorable mention. The honorable mention is going to be my favorite sports documentary of all time. And this is tough because I, I could list like 10 that I love equally. That's how I am. But the one that I want to make sure people know about in case they've never heard of it, just in case, is Free Solo. So are you familiar with this film? Oh, absolutely. I watched this film with my palms sweaty for the entire time. Good. I was literally screaming in the theater with the two other people that were in it. Amazing. Okay, Legit. good. I, that's how mine was too. I only had like a couple people in it as well when I saw it in IMAX. And this is the thing. I've never rock climbed. Well, I lied. I have rock climbed once in my life. Never free solo climbed, of course. But I'm not like a rock climber. I enjoy hiking. But this was the one of the most fascinating things I've ever seen in my life. You know, it follows this guy, Alex Honnold, this incredible free solo climber who climbs these gigantic rock faces with no ropes. That's what it means. It's just his hands and his feet. If he falls, he dies. And most of the people who do this for a living, for a hobby, do die pretty young in their 30s, 40s, whatever. They don't usually make it to their old age because they just have a passion for this and it's that dangerous. You you fall, you die. And so I was fascinated by the mental aspect of this movie and getting to know this guy and how he was balancing a newfound love of his life with his love of doing this incredibly dangerous task. And in this movie is all about him conquering the biggest, baddest thing, right? That's out there. It's filmed and directed by Jimmy Chin and his wife, Elizabeth Chai Versahali. And Jimmy Chin is famous because he's a climber himself and famously made a movie called Meru, also one of my favorite movies, where he was climbing this mountain with a couple other people. One of them gets hurt on their first attempt, almost dies, has fatal injuries. Jimmy then gets caught in an avalanche, somehow miraculously survives. They get this guy healed up just enough in five months to go back and do it again, and they actually make the summit. It is insane. It's kind of stupid to a lot of human beings to like see what these guys are doing, but his imagery and his ability to mix, like you can tell it comes from the passion of doing the task, doing the climbing himself. And when he's able to transfer that into this just incredibly immersive, gorgeous cinematography, 
it's unlike anything I've ever experienced. And so Free Solo for me, the IMAX was mind boggling in a way that I just never, ever thought was possible sitting in a movie theater. I'll admit I was able to interview Alex Honnold. And so <laughs> that then just sort of elevated it because I got to know him a little bit and talk to him. It's on my podcast, so it's on Feeling Film. If you want to search for Alex Honnold, you can find it. But it was great. And I just have so much respect for the type of film. I don't even know that I agree with them. Like on a moral or ethical or whatever you want to say, I don't know that I think it's the right choice for him if I was making the choice for him, but I'm not him. He's risking a lot to do it, but it was just, it blew me away. So I, I had to mention Free Solo and I didn't want to take up one of my five spots. <laughs> No, so. I'm I'm so glad you mentioned that. And I remember listening to the episode with Alex Honnold and I totally forgot about that because I'm so obsessed with him. I've listened to him on every single thing. I'm like a smart Honnold. I do too now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now that I knew um, about him. I find his psychology mesmerizing and uh, the debate in the film of whether he sort of blunted his fear uh, se segment of the brain, right? To like forget the actual name. It's like, is it the Modulo Oblongata? I, I think know. it is the Abdullah yeah. Oblongata. Yeah. 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 Waterboy's not on my list, so don't worry. <laughs> the interpersonal ethics of uh, his relationship with his girlfriend slash now now, now wife now, now wife yeah, yeah um, but uh, it was uh, so intimate and so real and raw in that movie and how that affected what was a very unilateral pursuit where he didn't have that moral dilemma because no one really cared about him in that way. I, I, he had really interesting also parents because his parents are extremely supportive and pretty adjusted. His mother at least, yet she seems to be okay with it in a way that I can't imagine almost any other mother uh, being. I, had, I actually asked him that question in the podcast too. And I don't want to give away how he, what he said, but because I want people to go listen to it. But G I asked him about, you know, Jimmy Chan is being, you know, a great friend of his. And there's all these people that are positioned to film his eventual attempt at this climb once he makes it. And they had to come to Jesus because they had to acknowledge that they were there in a way that was to capture this cinematically and to let Alex do what Alex was doing. And if Alex fell, they were going to be sitting there filming their friend's death. I mean, I cannot even fathom. I mean, it's so different than any of the sports films that I'm going to talk about, right? We, even the biopics, that things that actually, that are dramatic, you know, depictions of things that happened. But this one, just, you're watching it and live. And when you don't know what's going to happen, especially like if you don't know the story beforehand, it's, like you said, palms are sweaty. You're literally just in, in intensely, your, your body, you're feeling it in this movie in a way that cinema had never done to me before. It's yeah. Incredible. Incredible. Visceral, physiological goosebumps the whole time. But like, like I said, palm sweaty uh, on the edge of my chair. And I'm telling myself, I just keep like reiterating, this has to work out okay. It's a movie. It has to work out. It's okay. I had my cell phone. I refused to Google search it because I would not reduce myself to the tension, but I'm like tempted to, because I'm like, this guy has to turn out okay. But watching uh, Jimmy Chin, but also the whole crew, I, I don't know the cameraman's name, but there was one cameraman who had his camera set up and he just couldn't take it. He could not take it. And watching him is one of the best parts in the film where he's just like hands on the knees, like deep, <laughs> like dry heaving almost. And, you know, by proxy, you feel the moral and just personal affection they have for him and the loss and the, the fear they have for him. And it's almost worse for them 
in the sense that they're not doing it. And once you start to do a physical activity, as terrifying as it is, uh, it takes away some of it. But I, and I'm not trying to reduce anything that Alex Honnold did. It's absolutely uh, super heroic. But uh, the emotional weight that the film crew had to deal with that day was unreal because they oh, didn't it's worse. Yeah. It's easily worse. Yeah, he talks about that. Like, you know, for him, it's just a matter of, he gets up a couple times and doesn't, you know, giving away a little bit of the film, but he, he's able, he doesn't quite get there on the day that it was scheduled. He's not right and ready for whatever reason. But the day that he goes, the go day, it just happens. And they're kind of waiting for it. They're just there every morning waiting to get the shots, right? And then the morning that Alex wakes up and he's like, I'm gone. And there's no communication. There's no talking to the film guys. And he, that doesn't happen. He just gets up, his mind is ready, and he goes climbs. And yeah, to like wait day after day to wonder when that's going to happen. And then to have just that feeling of helplessness for him, he's made a decision. Like he's okay with dying if that's what it comes to. But they're not okay with him dying if he was to fall. And so it's incredibly just emotional and psychological in a way that is fascinating stuff. Yeah, it's it's a it's a modern day like warrior mentality of like I'm going to accomplish this or I'm going to die and yet I'm willing to do it. And we don't see that very much in modern temperaments because we we have it too too good. We have our lives are you know what I mean they're too coddled and I, for the better. I'm not trying to say that's a negative, but uh, he's one person who had to put everything on the limit every time he he goes to do what he loves and he's still willing to do it because he loves it that much. It's just a testament to both his psychological strength and his character. He has a tremendously unique character that, like you said, it's, it's you could be critical of it in one half of your brain and the other half, you're kind of envious or just you have to revere it. You have to have some level of reverence for it, even if it's not going to be you or your, your, your life. Like I would not do that for myself, perhaps, but I'm going to be in awe when I watch Alex Honnold because he does something that you don't see in any of these other sports as great as they are. It's just not that degree of risk. And they go over that in the film. So amazing film. I'm so glad you brought that up. You could cheat as much as you want. Technicalities. I don't care for um, even spoilers for this. I, I, I should make it known more explicitly, but I've made it known before. We are a spoiler saturated podcast. So if you start to hear a title of a film and you don't want to hear about it or see it either skip ahead or, or just turn it off and go watch it first. I, I just like to talk about the meat of things here. So that's one of our common things. So don't worry about that either. You could bring up anything in this podcast. <laughs> Because, I mean, you're interested in filling film in which you have very immersive episodes that you talk about pretty much everything. And then you have the new ones where I love these ones, but they're like, you know, spoiler free, which they should be because you're trying to talk about topical new films and Mm -hmm. give your take. And it's a really good balance. We're doing old stuff for the most part. We're doing classics. We're doing a niche genre, you know, so we just want to get into the the nitty gritty. So I'm now excited to hear. Is it now you're you're getting to the number five or any yes, other? No, we're going to go into number five, but I'm still you're going to find some cheating within the num- the five. But there there's five. Totally OK. There's five <laughs> numbers to go through. Uh, <laughs> so my number five, I guess, is another extreme warrior of the sports world. And that's Happy Gilmore. Uh, <laughs> and this one is the one once I get done with this list, you're going to be like, what? But listen, I don't love comedies. I am well known in my circles for being a guy that does not gravitate towards the modern comedy specifically because I find them to be too raunchy. I just, they just don't hit for me very often. There's a few that I absolutely love going back the years that are like, say, in my top 100, like Christmas Vacation and Groundhog's Day. But the sports version of that for me is Happy Gilmore. And this is the comedy, the one that caught me in my late teens, early young adult years that I watched on repeat 
over and over and over. The other one that I watched on repeat over and over, well, two of them, one of them will be on this list later, and the other one was The Waterboy. That one didn't hold up. I watched that again recently, and it was just like, see, again, like that was too dumb for me. But Happy Gilmore is just a perfect blend of Adam Sandler, not taking it too far and not going overboard and understanding how restrained humor in a character can be way more impactful and way funnier than the overly crazy nature of some of the characters he's played over the years. And so for me, when I watch Happy Gilmore, I just smile from start to finish. There's something incredibly sweet and charming about it. And it is the type of movie that works well as a time capsule. Some comedies just don't. Comedy specifically, like it's really hard to capture what's funny in culture in one time period and then it still be funny to that culture in another time period. But Happy Gilmore doesn't really do too much with the world around it in a way that is necessary to the film. And so you can watch it today and just totally love it without the product placement screwing everything up or things like that. And so it is really my just feel good movie that I had to put on this list. I mean, some of these are feel good in the end, but they take me on a real roller coaster. Happy Gilmore's not like that. It's just so unbelievable when you think about this plot. It's so silly and so unlikely. And I think one of the elements that really connects for me with this movie is just that it's the belief that this is that sports film where the guy with zero athletic capability whatsoever, other than strength, I guess. But for the most part, he's not really got that much athletic ability, but he's kind of like an everyman. You can see yourself in him because he's so dopey. And so when you take that and you want to go out on the golf course, the one thing we all want to do is see how far we can smash the ball. You know, and the common saying in the game is, Drive for show, putt for dough. You win the games by putting. And of course, that comes into play in Happy Gilmore in a great way. Very hilarious way for those putt-putt fans out there, which we all should be. And just taking those elements, it connects you to this in a way that something like The Legend of Bagger Vance or Tin Cup, those portray the game of golf as it really kind of is in this much more respected and esteemed kind of way. Happy Gilmore represents the game of golf for the everyman who just wants to go out and play on the weekend with his buddies and have some beer. And it is phenomenal. It's got everything you want from him doing what he's doing to save his grandma and a sweet romance where he gets the girl that's a little bit out of his league, but recognizes him for the good soul that he is. And it's got an all-time iconic villain in Shooter McGavin um, and a character that is partially iconic, I believe, because he's not an actor that has been in a lot of movies. So once you become famous, it's a little harder to have those. Somebody like Alan Rickman is really rare where, you know, he's Snape and the Sheriff of Nottingham and Hans Gruber. Like, that's incredibly unlikely that you're able to be that iconic in multiple ways. And Shooter McGavin does it with his one, you know, one minute of fame or whatever you want to call it. And, and then Chubbs, you know, you've got unintentional diversity in a, in a place where it wasn't always going to show up. And I just love it. I love the relationship with him in the film that he has as a mentor to Happy. And it just, it, it makes me smile, man. The name is, says it all. It's Happy. So it's, I had to put something like that on this list. And this is the one that I go back to all the time. I think it's a perfect one to put on the list, even if it's the anomaly of your list as you're foreshadowing. But I love that you put it on. And I agree with every single 
thing that you just said, except for one, you kind of saw my head maybe slightly shaking into that he has zero athletic skill. We can't forget that Happy Gilmore has a brilliant slap shot. That was the only thing he, that he's got the best slap shot ever. Um, and that, that, that's his one kind of, that's kind of the funny thing too, because he sucks on the ice. He can't, he can't ice skate, but he has that great slap shot. But I also have a deep nostalgic love for Happy Gilmore. And from everything you said, uh, having Chubbs in there, a nice, not so common diversity casting for the time to the sweetness of the movie. It's got a sweetness that Adam Sandler movies try to do, but they don't tend to do as much. And lately, especially, but this film really feels earnestly sweet. And I have to also throw out a little strangely boasting, timely anecdote here that I just took for a kind of a side gig. I got my real estate license on Friday, three days ago. Oh, congratulations. Thank you. And I was sweating and it was tough. It's like 195 questions and they don't tell you how many you pass by, but I think I passed by just a very few, maybe if one or two questions. And I think a question 192 was about how many days does it take to reinstate a home after a judicial foreclosure? And this question, I would not have remembered if I didn't tell myself happy Gilmore's grandma had 90 days to get her house back. So, Oh my gosh. (laughs) This movie helps me, I'm 100% sure, get over the hump. So that's a very funny mnemonic that I used to study for that very that's awesome detail-oriented test i just had to throw that out there because it was so timely but no i just love that yeah everything you said about this uh great film adam sandler's best it's aged very well even the product placement i think has a purpose like it's really funny the subway stuff i, I think yeah, it still the subway, it, but it's still fitting because it's still going on that's the thing like if it wasn't still a thing to have you know five dollar footlongs and such then it wouldn't make sense but Somehow, miraculously, 30 years later or 25 years later, it's still going. They basically sell $5 footlongs. Inflation doesn't do anything to Subway, I guess. I think they're like $6 now. I remember hearing that jingle once, like it was $6 foot long. And I was like, that just doesn't sound right. $6 foot long. No, it doesn't work as well. Super off, super off. You're right. I mean, I guess the Bob Barker dated a little bit oddly now for some people, but I I also, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because people don't know who he is. Like kids, when my kids watch this for the first time, they're like, who's that? What's the big deal? I'm like dying laughing. Like, you know, of course I'm quoting the movie the whole time, you know, but they're like, they don't know necessarily who Bob Barker is unless they've seen Price is Right. Um, Some of them have, but yeah, that part will be harder to move on over time. But for the most part, it still works really well. Yeah. A little bit harder, but also there's gotta be a lot of people out there that have that trivia impulse. I mean, I've always had it even with 70s films. I didn't grow up in the early seventies. I'm basically a late eighties, nineties child. And I still love to Hmm, what, what is this reference to? And I'm going to go Google it. We have Google now. So yeah, I think it's just do a little homework, people. You don't know who Bob Barker is? You know, pull out that cell phone. We got the comedy out of the way. It was a great, great choice. Um, what is your number four? Okay. N- nothing else is funny. <laughs> so we're done with funny now. We're, okay. Everything else is serious. In most ways, serious. I guess one of them is kind of, what is my number four? Oh, I see. I, I it is so hard for me. It's funny because I simultaneously love making lists and ranking things. But I also get great anxiety over it because these are all my favorite things. I love them all, you know, equally in many ways. So for my number four, I'm going to say Rocky and Creed. And I say Rocky and Creed because for the longest time, I would held the belief that Creed was the best Rocky movie. I've since come to watch Rocky as an adult. And I said that because I saw Creed after not having seen Rocky for 20 years and was blown away by the modernity of it. And that is still something that I am going to gravitate toward in the rest of my list. You're going to see that is an element that for me is strong. Like 
it feels right. Rocky is a time capsule. I mean, it is a very personal film by Stallone that captures a specific place at a specific time and socioeconomic status. It is incredibly inspirational and it is a beautiful, beautiful film that takes friendship into account and mentorship and determination and it's the ultimate underdog story and without Rocky, we don't get Creed. So I get it. But I was blown away by the way in which Creed could build upon Rocky. It was copying it, but it didn't feel like it was copying it. Some of the cinematography choices, the action in the ring specifically, the implementation of ESPN commentators, which is again what brings it into that modern world for me, the emotionality of it and the journey that Adonis Creed has to go on is just beautiful. And you've got one of my favorite current actors in Michael B. Jordan who just owns this role. And the fact that Stallone comes back for that film to reprise his role as Rocky in a very heartwarming way. I mean, I thought Stallone should have won the Best Sporting Actor for his role in Creed, to be honest with you. I mean, he was that good. And it just ties these two movies together. And so I like a lot of the Rocky sequels. But these two, to me... They showcase such a similar story, but for very different time periods. And they're equally capturing what it means to be a boxer in their day and age. And I think it's brilliant. I think it's incredible that they're able to do that and fit seamlessly into this universe together and exist like that. And so I can't separate them because I absolutely love both of them. I, I struggle every time. It's one of those situations where it's like, which one's your favorite? Whichever one I watched last is my favorite, you know, whichever one's still on my mind. Without Rocky, we don't get all of these sports films that I'm about to mention that have incredible montage scenes. That's because Rocky did it. And Rocky made it cool and Rocky made it something that I now look for and I need. Like, I almost knock a sports film if it doesn't have a montage. Like, I need that for it to be complete. So I put these two together. I am not the hugest boxing fan, probably way lower on my sporting interest list. I don't follow the sport. I watch it every once in a while, you know, here and there, but definitely don't seek it out. And yet I could not be more invested in these characters and their career. And part of it is also because of that, because I'm completely out of the boxing. I don't follow the sport and I don't fully comprehend what it is that makes a person want to do that sport because I don't follow it closely. Like it, it is a little bit foreign to me. And so these movies give me a way to get into that world and understand that. So yeah, I'm all in on the whole Rocky and Creed universe. Honestly, I, I love it all and I'm excited for Creed 3, but Rocky and Creed specifically are the ones that are just sports hall of fame for me worthy. A Hall of Fame sports films, no doubt. And I'm in the same boat. I'm not a huge boxing fan by any means, but as we're going to get into today with our, let's say, main event film, The Queen's Gambit, it's a great sport to depict in film because it's one-on-one. -on -one. And so you could really build up those singular characters. I mean, there's different pros and cons to different types of sports, right? Because I love the team camaraderie, the, the, the building the solidarity of team. But I really also love those individual sports because I like that you can get really into the psychology of one person. And everything you said is definitely on point. Uh, what's so great about Creed is that it follows the formula of Rocky pretty much to a T, as you said. But it doesn't matter. It delivers so well. And the performances are so strong. You know, Ryan Coogler's direction is perfect. It just hits every single beat it needs to hit. And it also has, like you said, some modern updates within the mold, right? It doesn't try to break the mold. 
but it's very different in the sense that Stallone and Rocky, right, is, is a poor up-and-comer, whereas in Creed, it's a little bit different. Michael B. Jordan is well off. His father was a successful boxer, but he has different obstacles, right? And so th- th- they both have challenges that are equally significant, but they're different. And so I-, I just think they're two perfect capsules of two different socioeconomic worlds, two different communities, two different individuals. And they both feel raw and authentic. And I even love, really love Tessa Thompson's character with uh, you know her hearing problems. And uh, she's fully flushed out. She's not just in mini sports films, the pretty like lame, you know, spouse or a girlfriend that yep. gets a few scenes. She has a full character that's complex. And I, I think that is a testament to the film. And it emblemizes everything that's great about it is that they took care of all the peripheral things as well. Yeah. To make sure it was great. So awesome choice. And yeah, she also has her own like arc. Like she she does. She like she has her own starting point and ending point of success that she is trying to achieve alongside Creed. So it, it is so much unlike a modern film that's just so laser focused on that one sporting person. Yeah, it's always like the either worrisome wife or the nagging wife, like with the coach saying you're like you spend too much time on the team or the rational wife or girlfriend. But they're always only there to contribute to the the athlete or the coach in these sports movies, where, like you said, she has her own arc. She has her own passion. And you're in, you're as invested in her as you are in him. I mean, a little less so, it, but you are invested. And it's very fulfilling to follow her character as well. Of course, it's first and foremost, you know, about Boxy and Michael B. Jordan. But she's a significant part. You can't take away from that at all. They do a great job with that. So Let's just keep the ball rolling. What is your number three? My number three is Ron Howard's Rush. This is a film that I adored and has always been a five-star film for me from the first time I saw it. But this most recent rewatch, kind of just to solidify what was going to be on my top five for this podcast, happens at a time when just last year, I actually kind of discovered for real and became a fan of F1 racing. And so I got to watch this with the eyes of someone who spent last year obsessing over getting into the F1 sport. I watched almost all of the races last year, watched a couple of great Netflix seasons of this show called Drive to Survive that followed the previous two years of F1. And so I was able to kind of like almost immerse myself in three full years of the sport in a very condensed time. You know, I've got my favorites. I've got storylines to root for and cheer on. And and then I, I started expanding like I do, as I told you with going for a theme. So I'm like watching all of these documentaries on Cinna and these older films like Grand Prix, which is also in my sports hall of fame uh, movie. That one is an older F1 film in the sixties or seventies. I just consumed everything I could about the sport, but it all for me is like perfectly represented in this one. There, There is literally nothing that I dislike about this film. The cinematography is incredible. The film editing And the way that they capture the cars driving is incredible. The sound design is just amazing. You know, I I thought about Ford v. Ferrari as well, and and it's got great sound design. But like this film to me trumps it. I also like the cars here a little more because they're modern or they're a little bit more modern F1 cars. They're a little older in those films, Ford v. Ferrari film. The performances by Chris Hemsworth as James Hunt and by Daniel Bruhl as... Uh, Nikki Lauda, I think, are career best performances for both actors 
they are able to depict this rivalry that is a little bit embellished because the two men were actually more friendly than they're shown to be in the film. But it works really well and it ends in a way that is both cinematically appropriate, emotionally necessary, and yet gives you the the real truth, too, about how these people ended their lives respecting each other and as as buddies. It is just incredible. The momentum that this film is able to create throughout, it is so fast-paced, just like the sport, and the details that it nails about the sport that I never really noticed the first few times I've watched it, I was able to pick up on this time around things like driver's meetings and how important it was for them to get points even if they didn't win. Like, I didn't really understand the point system in this sport until last year. Yeah, I thought it was just like win or lose kind of thing. But it's very much unlike that. Though They touch on the team aspect of the sport. They're big personalities. It's part of what has drawn me to F1 as a sport in general is I love the big flamboyant personalities. These guys are the top 20. There's 20 drivers in this sport in the world at any given time. There's 20. There are hundreds of people in the NBA. There are thousands probably in the NFL and baseball. There are 20 people in the world that compete in this sport. That is insanely elite and they act like it and they're not quite right and you get to see that in this movie and you get to see two different types of the personalities that actually exist in this world the flamboyant crazy playboy one of james hunt that just wants to win because it's fun and he wants the the pride of it as far as like the lights to shine on him he wants more amazing hot women you know to come into his bedroom and then you have nikki lauda who is just all about like precision he says at one point in this movie why they say why aren't you driving faster like if you're nikki lauda and he's like because there's no need to i'm not in a race like he's incredibly methodical and yet he equally wants to win as bad but it's kind of for different reasons it's just Oh, it's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. It is the mo- one of the most immersive sports movies you will ever watch from start to finish. It takes you on that emotional roller coaster that I absolutely love. It has montage. Uh, it, it nails all of the elements that I need it to nail beautifully. I end it just with a big smile on my face and my heart full. And I can't recommend it to people enough if they haven't seen it. And I know some people haven't seen it. So that's why I say that. It's not necessarily the most famous of films, but it, it is one that I could watch on loop and never get tired of. I like that you ended that you would watch it on loop because it's just so fitting, right? Going around. Um, but and so, yeah. <laughs> going around. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Going around track. I'm not into the sports. So that's one thing that is different, but I still love this film. I know you reached out to me when I shared my top sports movies. You're like, Rush is way too low, man. <laughs> I know that you love this film. And the only reason why this film is very low for me is that I've only seen it once and it was a while ago. So just listening to you talk, I'm getting excited to watch it again. I loved it. It's a well slick, perfectly oiled film. It is aesthetically beautiful to look at hyperkinetic. The cutting, the edits are just sharp. I I still remember that. I I love the characters. Hemsworth is great at the lead. And I didn't know that there was only 20 premier athletes. That's a very niche club of people. And I love like aristocracy in the sense that you get eccentricity. And I think of them as like an athletic aristocracy then because they're just this very elite club. And you get like you were pointing out different neuroses or different 
methodologies. And so you're kind of piquing my interest now for Formula One racing in general. And one of the things that is really cool about racing films, and I love Ford v. Ferrari. I've seen that more recently. So I love them both. I wouldn't even choose one, but I love them both personally. And I just listened to a DGA podcast with the director, Directors Guild, um, James Mangold. And he was explaining that when he actually doesn't love watching racing live because he can't see the real action, which is what's going on in the car. Do you now have videos when you watch these events inside the cars at all? Oh, yeah. So every F1 car has a camera that is one that is on the dash that is focused in and you'll see the helmet view of the driver. And there's another one on the driver behind the driver's shoulders that you see their dashboard. So you'll see their hands turning as they go. And I mean, we're talking about go-karts that go 250 miles per hour. It's crazy. We saw a wreck last year. It was one of the worst ones they've had in decades because the sport has made incredible safety strides since the 70s and 80s when driver death was at an all-time high. In fact, this depicts one of one of the worst events, which is Nikki Lauda, who has this incredible accident and is burned over X amount of his body, just completely torched. And it was creepy watching at this time because last year towards the end of the season, there was a crash and it just, the car exploded into a fireball. A, a driver named Groshan was his last name and he was able to be pulled out almost immediately. The car is in half and in, in uttered in flames stuck inside the railing. And by the time they got there to put it out, like if he hadn't have been able to just perfect scenario, was able to push himself out, get out and push away from the car. If he'd have been there another 15, 20 seconds, probably would have been dead. It's that much of a death defying type of speed that they're dealing with, even with all the safety precautions. And it is fascinating to me. And I like, you know, NASCAR goes in circles. They go left, 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 left. Formula One's not like that. The tracks turn and, you know, bends and there's not nearly as much passing because the gaps are harder to overtake. But when there is action, it is the most heightened, incredibly exciting action when they are able to do that. And then there's also the element in this sport of it's not just the driver. So it's a team sport in that your pit stop time matters. Your car means every bit as much as your driver does because you're not quite on a level playing field. It's the one thing that they're actually changing the rules here in the next couple of years to limit the spending the teams can do to try and bring those cars more to a level playing ground, which is, I think, going to be really good for the sport because you could be in the car that doesn't have the money to spend on the best engine and, and do the best research and you could have the best driver in that car and he's, his driving skills won't come into play because the car can't get to the front of the pack to allow his driver skills to matter and so just watching that fascinating interplay over the course of a season between teammates the thing the thing is you have teammates right so each team is two drivers and if they overtake each other in the points like there is a team championship where each team gets money based on their place and then there's the individual championship so you have two drivers who care about both doing well but they also were against each other at every point in that season and it can lend itself to some really exciting scenarios uh, throughout the season and so yeah I re highly recommend the sport and I think the great entry point is Netflix's Drive to Survive series they've got two out now and then the third season is coming out early March depending on when this drops, early March 2021, and it'll be out. And, and it's a great kind of primer. If you're interested in F1, it will tell you everything you need to know and get you prepared and let you know if it's something for you or not. And then if you do like it and you get into it, I can assure you that Rush will just rush right even up higher on your favorite film list.
Thanks for the recommendation. I think that it is a great entry point. I was going to actually ask you for the name of that Netflix uh, series again. Now I'm going to add that to my my list, my list as they call it. I think that's an interesting also move that they're making to create more parity by limiting the spending. I, I think that's a commendable move because we have to favor competition being on an equal level when we, when we think of sport. The only bummer is that you want to see everyone with the most money. You want to see everyone reach that highest level of spending because you just want to see it optimized at the highest level of possible competition. So hopefully they'll, they'll be able to raise that ceiling together as a sport with the years. But I definitely think that's important to create that parity. So really interesting sport. It's great in film too, because we get these video cameras, they can just choose the editing so perfectly for drama and tension. And you get the interior and exterior shots, right? You get the shot with the driver and with the cars. It's a really fantastic movie that has stuck with me, even though I've seen it so long ago. And I still had it pretty high, even though it was like a midnight watch like eight years ago or so. So uh, let's just keep on rolling. And we're already getting up there. What we are- this is, We're down to number two and number one. And this is where the cheating actually is going to happen because I, I can't choose. I'm sorry. I can't. So what I've done is I've created groups. <laughs> so number two, top five film, and we put that in quotes, is the Friday Night Lights universe. <laughs> and that encompasses the film Friday Night Lights, the film Varsity Blues, and the show Friday Night Lights. So for me, if I had to pick one, slightly over the other. I might say the movie Varsity Blues over the movie Friday Night Lights, and I know that's an unpopular thing that most people wouldn't pick as I'm picking the MTV Rockstar version, but that is a formative movie in my teenage years. It is one of those films that I can quote you every single line without fail. It just has the propulsiveness the energy of the kind of movies that I like to watch. It is full of incredibly memorable performances and iconic moments and all of these things. And so while I will never argue that it is the best implementation of the story, uh, the famous book, Friday Night Lights, that was written, the other two are very much better than it when it comes to that. It was, again, I call it the rock star version of that, the MT, and it was produced by MTV. So that's why it sounds, it has amazing soundtrack of, you know, rock songs and punk and alternative songs that I used to listen to. So that one for me is just the most rewatchable of any of these three properties. You move to Friday Night Lights, the movie, my, I don't know what he is, he's like a sixth cousin, Billy Bob Thornton, uh, is the star of this. Yeah, I know, right? I don't know him, so I don't really talk about it too much, because it's not like we're buddies and we've... I, I There was one family reunion he came to, and it was a year I didn't go to, like, the extended one, and I was so angry. He was with Angelina Jolie at the time, and I just, I just hated myself for missing that, right? But, uh, yeah, so he's kind of like a long, you know, extended family kind of person for me, but... I love his character in this as a coach and the fact that Connie Britton is the wife in both of these films is kind of amazing to me. I just love the way this story is condensed. Peter Berg is a favorite director for me, which again is kind of a a little bit of a wild opinion in circles that I go in. Some people are like, you're crazy, Peter Berg. I don't care. I like his movies, dude. They tell emotional stories that resonate with me and he does heroes really well. The action on the field, specifically the way that he shoots it, which then you know carries over into the series 
and the way that they film it is awesome to me. It's some of the best football action that I can imagine in any entertainment medium. And so when I want to go to any kind of football type of movie or show, like this is it. I just watched Friday Night Lights, the show for the first time. It was a long time blind spot, but after the Battlestar Galactica thing, so Patrick and I, it was one of his favorite shows. We decided to go through it and we went through it all of last year and maybe two weeks ago is when I actually, we watched the finale. What we did is we would watch every season and then we would get on a call, a, a, a chat room, and we would watch the season finale together so we could video chat during it. It was, it was an incredible experience between the two of us. I highly recommend that for anybody who you know has a close friend that isn't in the same per- place as you and you want to watch something together. It was it was neat. And it was just that show resonates with me so hard. You know, you got Michael B. Jordan, baby Michael B. Jordan. You got baby Aldous Hodge, um, who is becoming one of my favorite actors in this day and age. He played Voodoo Tatum. There's just so many character arcs. There's not a lot of TV shows I go through because I can't maintain the interest in them long enough. They're too long, much like video games. You know, I just, I need the film version, but this is one that had had its hooks in me from the very start. There are characters that I have never cried so much about in my life as that series finale. We say Texas forever. You know, we say Claire eyes, full hearts can't lose. Those characters have literally become meaningful to me in a way that so many have never, like, you know, the vast 99% of the characters I watch in TV and movies don't. But I will always feel connected. I will always care about them in a special way. And so that whole universe, man, like everything about I've read the book. The book's amazing. Uh, Highly recommend it as HG. Somebody Bissinger, I want to say is the last name. It's amazing. The story and just kind of having like three different versions of this same idea. It captures growing up in Arkansas. I can tell you, I know very well in close hand what it's like in the South for football in the 80s and the 90s. And this nails it. This nails everything I know about Texas football culture at that time. And so this authentic in a way that is also entertaining and just mind-bogglingly good, man. Yeah, I mean, I first and foremost love the television show. It's been so long since I watched it. I watched it when it was live with my dad, like every single time the episode came on TV. And I mean, it's just such an emotionally powerful television series and you think it's about football it's not about football it it, it is they have great football scenes they're very rousing football scenes the best ones are usually like in the practice or in the rain i like the scenes where they all run up the hill at like night and they they have that big moment of solidarity when the coach is yelling at them and they start chanting the great emphatic line but uh it's it's about human perseverance uh you have quarterbacks who pretty much get paralyzed you have relationships and that are really tricky you have a small town Texas community and all the intricacies of that. I think it's a TV show for everyone. It's it, it meets every quadrant in my book and it's a crowd pleaser. And Peter Berg, in my mind, almost does no wrong. I am a huge fan of Peter Berg. And if you're not, you're just not a humanist. You're just overlooking the the core heart of all his films. He cares about people and his films make you care for them. Maybe they're not people you normally care for, but from Deepwater Horizon to Patriots Day. I just love everything he does. I just really think he is one of the great character-centric filmmakers today. And yeah, he has a, a world that he, he focuses on. It's more like burly, tough, hardworking. Yeah, the masculinity color. definitely plays into his films. Yeah, I could have just reduced it to that, right? It's, it's very masculine, but there's a, mas- there's a heart to these masculine depictions, right? And they're usually tragic and very much so, and they, they gut you by the end. 
but he can truly get you to care. I love it. Uh, Varsity Blues is great for nostalgic reasons. Uh, shout out to your podcast on that. People go check that out because you, uh, you guys love it to death and it's infectious. I'm actually not, you know, the same like degree of fandom for that, but it's a great MTV 90s, James Vanderbeek, Paul Walker film like it's fun it's nostalgic I like it in the same way I like and this is not in any way to bring it down but I love Can't Hardly Wait or you know 90s films or Can't Hardly Wait's a five star for me (laughs) one of my absolute favorite films cool 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 no I mean like yeah 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 yeah, like I I can equate them too very well 10 Things I Hate About You you know also produced by MTV very much the same very much the same yes and that's what I meant I just in case you people didn't like Can't Hardly Wait or thought it was a a bad example. I like Can't Hardly Wait a lot. And so th- these are the films of our childhood, the big MTV movies with the great soundtracks that still resonate to this day of putting a signature on like, this is 1997. And so 1997, I'm just throwing a year out there, but they are great. So I can't believe it, but we are already up to your number one. And yes. I don't know how you're going to top this trifecta but <laughs> we'll see with another trifecta that's how so <laughs> this is cheating like crazy right gavin o'connor sports movies <laughs> gavin o'connor has made arguably my three favorite sports films of all time maybe not the way back maybe not quite that level but it was my number two film of last year And I know that I'm in my own world with that for a lot of people. Hopefully your listeners will respect and understand my placement of it. But there is a way that Gavin O'Connor as a director has been able to capture sports stories that is the formula for me. It is as if he has been able to like look into my brain, peg every single thing that I need to tick off a box to have and put it into work. We started with Miracle back in the early 2000s, which is a sport that I care nothing about and a situation that I knew nothing really about uh, growing up, but that I came to deeply, deeply care about and respect and praise. And, and it's just every single one of his films has those rousing speech moments that you will remember uh, whether it's Coach Herb and his amazing scene that, that I oh, I just never get it out of my head when he's saying again, again, they lose a, a match and he's trying to get it through to them, right? He's trying to, he starts off kind of punishing them, but he's trying to get the team to buy into who they are. And this all, he just runs them to, to the point where probably far past he probably should have. And they're about to collapse and one of them finally gets it. And this whole time they've just been, he'll say, who do you play for? Oh, I play for the University of Minnesota. Oh, I play for Boston. Oh, I play for Pittsburgh or whatever. And finally, without any coaxing, a kid gets it and he says, you know, I play for United States of America, right? And he understand in that moment that they've got to buy into the way that this team has to exist. And so it's very much about the kids coming together from all these different places and having to put aside their egos, which I, I always find fascinating stories of the greatest of the greats having to come together And somebody has to now not be great as well. Like in basketball, everybody can't score the ball. And so when you go to the Olympics, 
You have to defer. You may be the guy on your team, but you got to defer to maybe the better guy who's slightly better. And so we have that and they go through that struggle. And I just love watching that struggle. It's so human. It's so relatable to do that. Some We can go through that at work, right? Um, very similarly. And then this character study of a coach who is brought in to put this team together that has very much like the Queen's Gambit, incredible overarching importance to the United States of America, whether or not they could beat Russia finally, what it means to be able to actually defeat the Soviet Union in something in the Cold War. So Miracle for me is incredible. It's so rousing. It's so moving. I'm not a huge patriot, despite having been a military veteran, but it is the kind of movie that makes me have some pride as a country. I like that. I like that there is something that can actually achieve that. The Way Back, the most recent one, is, I think, so underrated. Didn't get seen by a lot of people. It was a movie that it was the last movie I saw in theaters before the pandemic shut us down here in Seattle, the beginning of it in early March. And so it had the problem of being kind of pushed aside in the national, you know, attention span. Ben Affleck was my best performance of the year in this movie. I think it's incredible the way that he portrays this coach with alcoholism who has to take over a Catholic school team that he used to play on. And he plays this character who had all this talent, was never able to make that transition into being a star in like the NBA, which is the reality that we never see. You know, we see tons of high school stars or college players. I mean, there's 300 something college teams in D1 and there's like 12 guys on 30 NBA rosters. So you do the math on how many guys aren't actually playing in the NBA. And then you do the math of how many guys aren't actually like stars. It's insane. So you can be great at one level and just never make it. And there's so many factors that can be injuries can be psychological, can be emotional, can be family, which we see in Ben Affleck's character. And then simultaneously, he's dealing with this grief and this trauma that he is so painful. Um, once you finally like come to understand what's going on with him, the way that he walks this line through it is unfathomably good. And it is, a, a, again, I kind of go back to authentic. I've never seen somebody portray alcoholism quite the way that Gavin O'Connor does in this movie. I mean, Ben Affleck's character is like drinking in the shower. You know, he's drinking it all. He's slurring his words when he's trying to leave a voice message. In most movies, I find alcoholism to be way overdone and just unbelievable to the point where I'm like, people don't actually do that. But in this one, I never had a doubt. You take that a little bit further and you start to poke behind the curtain and realize that this is a movie of healing for Ben Affleck because he dealt with alcoholism and depression in his career. And it all builds to this beautiful you know, moment with his team, but it's not about team success. Like in the end, it's about him. The beautiful moment in this movie is him. It's him on a basketball court, picking up a ball for the first time in decades and a sunset behind him and the belief that healing can happen and redemption can happen in the most unlikely ways. It's like a two-tiered kind of movie where it's not, that's the thing that Gavin O'Connor does so well. It's never just about the team. If, if there's a team, it's about the team, but it's also about like that one person. And most movies, it's like either or in so many ways. So that one is phenomenal to me. Probably my favorite basketball movie. And then Warrior. Warrior is, I came I rewatched it last night and I, I would be hard pressed to say that there's another movie that would be my number one sports movie of all time. I think Warrior is impeccable uh, in every sense of the word. The, the performances are, are best 
in class for all of these actors. Nick Nolte supporting is one that just breaks you into pieces, uh, the way that he and Tom Hardy interact in this movie. The story is a little, it's out there, right? So it's, it's embellished to the point where it's probably not realistic. And yet you don't give a crap if it's unrealistic because it's authentic in the way that the characters deal with the situation they're in. It's got the heroism aspect. It's got, you know, because you've got your Tom Hardy character who's a military vet, who's got this secret and is just so hardened and absolutely unable to let go of this trauma and this pain that he's had from his childhood. He hates his father still for it. And his brother, who hasn't seen him in a decade, and his brother's a math teacher, but has to go back to MMA to try and save his house. Like, it's a story that all of us would want to relate to. Like, if I could fight to save my house, like, if I was able to do that, would I do that? Absolutely, I would, right? And there's this element of style in the way that they fight in the MMA cage. You have Tom Hardy, who is just this relentless force of uncaged anger, who just rushes forward and knocks everybody out. And then you have his brother, Brendan, who gets beat on constantly. It's very synonymous with his story growing up. Like you get the sense Brendan stayed with the dad. You think that Brendan probably got beat up on quite a bit and had to learn how to take it. And his story is one of, you know, a fighter who takes punishment and waits for the opportune moment and then submits everybody. And it's every sports movie's cliche. It's got, you know, your amazing montage in the middle. It's got the thing I said about Creed where it works in modern MMA terminology, announcers and and structuring. And it builds to this fight between the two of them, which you see coming from a mile away. And it doesn't matter because when it happens, you're cheering and you, I mean, I'm going to cry right now just talking about, but like I have never man cried so much as I do in this movie. And I do it every single time I watch it, knowing it's all coming literally just unconsolable, uncontrollable amount of tears come out of my eyes. There's a beautiful song by the national that plays some people. And this is the thing about sports movies, Paul, some people call this manipulative and it really upsets me. Every movie that is made is manipulative. They're telling a story. They want you to feel something, right? Like that's the freaking point is to feel something. So if I feel something, why are we going to call that a negative? No, no, that's positive. That is a absolute positive. And so, you know, this one does it as much as any movie I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh, it's redemption story. It's story of forgiveness and family. And it is just absolutely beautiful. And it doesn't wrap up with a perfect bow. It leaves some things hanging that are ambiguous that don't matter. You literally don't matter. This character might go to freaking military prison, to be honest. It doesn't matter because he's walking out of this ring with a broken arm from his brother, but he relents and accepts an I love you and let it go. Just let it go, right? And let's let's move on. Let's be a family and, and let 15 years of anger and pain go away. And so it's as good of a drama as it is a sporting movie. It has insane action filmography, filming from the cave. Like the action choreography is just awesome. Super powerful. Like everything about this movie, I absolutely love. And it, I, I'll stop. I have an episode on this one too. Like pretty much all these we do, but like we've done an episode on this one if you want more from me. But like, I love this movie with every fiber of my being. It's so good. I love this movie too. And I really love that you pointed out how the term manipulative is thrown out way too much, especially at sports movies. And it's really frustrating that we come across this again and again so far. Yes, it's manipulative if they're cheating in some way by 
uh, doing something that uh, I guess is morally dubious or there's some sort of trickery or chicanery to get you to feel a certain way, but there's none of that here. I think people call it manipulative because they don't want to be affected by a sports movie and they are. So they put up some defense and say, oh, it's manipulative. It's the most cynical, jaded stance. It's just like a miserly, it's Scrooge-like. And Warrior is earns every single emotional beat that it hits. Uh, it's a great movie. I think that why it's so great, it's it's kind of got a triad. It's got the sibling relationship, and then it's got the, the two father-son relationships, and each of those are equally strong. I've always been the most drawn, and believe it or not, to Nick Nolte's character. I don't actually not believe it or not. I think a lot of people are. I mean, his character is ferocious in this movie and that Ahab scene where he's in the the room like screaming Ahab you godless son of a whatever is just a powerhouse moment I was stunned jaw dropped in that scene and Joel Egerton's character is so so great in this film I, I I really like him as well probably more than Tom Hardy actually I don't want to even it doesn't have to be a competition but man is he he got a great role and one of my favorite actors period Fantastic number one. And I completely understand every point you made. You touched upon so much. I don't feel like I need to touch upon anything else on for that one. And I'm really excited for the fact that you brought up Miracle because that's our next uh, real big segment for cinematic underdogs is going to be hockey so maybe you'll come back on and chime in on miracle hey, i might today is the 41st anniversary of the speech and the actual beating the russians yeah it's it's pretty awesome i actually watched it this morning just to kind of recap and then i found that out afterwards and i was like man what kind of a coincidence is that whoa that is crazy serendipity yeah. very cool very very cool and i like that you brought up that it has the you know soviet u.s rivalry which is going to come into play a lot in our conversation about the queen's gambit and i think that's a perfect time to segue because i'm super excited to see the way back i listened to your podcast even because i'm not even a big spoiler person um but i haven't actually seen it yet i haven't got my hands on it really you're gonna love it you're gonna i'll love it i'll love it so without further ado let's get into uh, like i said the main event pun intended, uh, the Queen's Gambit. So man, it's hard to follow up that great top five list. It's almost like take a breather because I know that there's no way it's going to live up to your number one or even your number five. It's going to be somewhere else in the world, but uh, let's just try to approach it on its own terms, right? Because doing the top five is just, uh, it's such an exciting thing. I love to hear it. I love to hear the passion. And I was very contagious. I'm, I want to see all those films now almost immediately. But I thought of how am I going to start off this conversation on The Queen's Gambit? And I wanted to pay respect. I didn't want to be rude or brazen, but I wanted to take one of your key filling film things just for this one episode. And I want to start off with your perhaps one word takeaway. I know that's putting you on the spot because there's no preparation, but I'm pretty sure you can conjure up a word if you had a one word takeaway for The Queen's Gambit. And you can extrapolate on it, of course. But to get the ball rolling, what is your one word takeaway for this miniseries? Addiction. Fantastic takeaway, right? Yeah. It covers all the elements. Yeah. I think that it's so much about addiction more even than it is about chess. I mean, I don't want to say that because it sounds like we're pitting the two against each other. And I have read a lot on this series since watching it. And I've seen, you know, different takes And I've seen that people responded differently to the depiction of the chess and what their expectations were for how much this was going to be about chess. And it is really, though, a through point of addiction. And that's not just an addiction 
to drugs or to alcohol, but it is an addiction to the chess. And and that's okay because that's interesting to explore. And so I think that that theme is the, the centerpiece that just carries throughout all of the episodes of this series. One of the things that I took away from it, and I, my one word, if I get to use one, would be seamless. Uh, one of the things I read from... Uh, the creator and the director, it's many hands in this, right? It comes from a novel. It was adapted as a miniseries, but it was that they were fearful almost that it would all feel like one long montage. And it kind of has that vibe. There's a lot of piano that propels it forward, constantly different musical interludes. And I just feel like it's a very seamless miniseries and I think seamless works because it's also very it's another word manicured and I I was taking the word seamless because I I always as you do on filling film well you like double entendre with the words right to have multiple layers to the meaning the costuming is really important here the decorative aspect is very important the mod 1950s style the element of beauty and I like that you already brought up the external conversations because they're very interesting about this show and they are very polarized more than I thought, because I just watched it and really enjoyed it myself and didn't really pay attention until recently to some of the some of the dialogue that's going on out there. And one of the big problems that people have with this is that they call it too beautiful. And some project that on Anya, and they say that she's too beautiful for the role. One person was a literalist in uh, loving the novel and knowing the novel was about a very bland looking female protagonist. And that was part of the story and inherent to the sort of both moral and ethical growth of the novel. And so I understood that argument, but there was other arguments that I thought were low blows in which I didn't quite understand. And I thought that if anything, the miniseries was very self-aware of its beauty. It had some interactions, for example, when she befriends the French model, where they talk about beauty and female archetypes and how can you be smart and beautiful? If you're a model, then you're inherently dumb. Can, can, can she be both of these things? And I think it, it has a dynamic relationship to this. It's aware of it. Does it use it? Yes, it does. But the, I mean, we love beauty when we watch film. It doesn't have to be a beautiful lead. It, it shouldn't be a rule either way. But uh, this is a huge role. Beth Harmon's role is, I think, monumental in building Anya's career. And to me, it's like Audrey Hepburn style, where it's it's just like, she's already great from The Witches. I love Thoroughbreds. You can throw out a lot of roles, but I love she's them good all. in New Mutants, which actually kind of parallels this in some ways, which is oh, strange, but surprising. I've not seen that. So yes, She's definitely a burgeoning star, but yeah. this, I think, was a big breakout role for her. It was talked about so much. It was viewed so much, I think, 62 million times in the first month, just a few million less than the Tiger King, <laughs> which was a moment. So that, of course, that's going to get so many views because it was just such a, a of the moment thing. But well, here's yeah. here's the thing, like without that beauty and without that production value of this, without it being glossy and gorgeous, there's a uh, cinematography and this is just phenomenal. Uh, it is so slick and crisp in a way that doesn't look natural to the time period, but it's consistent throughout this. There is a couple different moments that really stuck out to me. One is when she leaves the first episode and a half at the orphanage, everything is dark. It's like browns and dulcet tones, grays, and they speaks to like the environment that she's in, the oppressive nature of it, and just no creativity allowed, no personality. And when she gets to the Wheatley's house, it is 
all teal, like this bright teal, and then these bright pinks and beiges. And I noticed that those same color schemes were present when she gets to a hotel or yeah, to a hotel and one of the events in Cincinnati. It's all these teal and, and pinks. And it was very of the time period. Like that's the color schemes that they were kind of going for. And, and they pop in a way that is visually really enticing in this. And the other one is when she's in Mexico and she goes to swim at night in the rain in this pool. It is one of the most beautiful rain soaked with neon shots that I've seen outside of Blade Runner and John Wick. Like those are the films that it reminded me of. And it just, I was like, my eyes were just like, like the little heart eye emojis, you know, from looking at it, it was so gorgeous. And so the beauty of the film, I think is fine because it's consistent. And when it comes to the character, yeah, I actually read that article that you're talking about. So we did the same research, I guess, because I understand in some cases wanting the book to match the movie. And when I started podcasting, I was very much like that. I read a bunch of young adult fiction. And so all of those movies were getting remade, right? I've since come to do almost a 180 on that point of view and understand that when you are adapting a story, you have to adapt it in a way that is cinematically interesting. And the response to this tells you they made the right choice. There is no way if this series was just about chess and that it perfectly adapting the way that the novel went, that it would ever have captured the zeitgeist of our culture last year and been like the hit thing for a two or three or four month period of our culture. And it was, and it still is. People loved it. It's about chess. It's got chess as the centerpiece. You have to make it visually stimulating and interesting. And they did that. So yeah, to me, the beauty of this is... A high point because there are parts of it that you know when we're talking about chess there's times it goes over my head still i'm not gonna lie and you know it's a heavy storyline of addiction at times and i think that the visual nature of the film helps to offset some of those feelings and moods you get to kind of make a balanced experience that is really enjoyable absolutely and i love that you brought the cinematography so quickly because this it's beautiful to look at sumptuous uh, you threw out some references that I'm on par with. I thought of Scorsese, actually, which you don't normally think of for a Netflix miniseries, but it is just stunning long tracking shots of, you know, period piece sets. The moment in Mexico City when she dives in that pool, gorgeous. I love that. The moment when she walks into the Las Vegas hotel. Oh, I love that scene. It's just the space that they capture and the cinematic depth to these things when I read about it really shocked me. I didn't know that they brought so much reference and there's so much referentiality within this miniseries. So that scene where she is walking into the Vegas hotel is a direct nod to the scene in Full Metal Jacket, which just blew my mind. I would not think that they would make such a strange and oblique reference, but they were. And I actually went to YouTube and watched it, and it's the same song, These Boots Were Made For Walking. And that scene is of, to be honest, a Vietnamese prostitute going up to two GIs and soliciting you know, her body to them, just what it is. But they're completely different in, in that sense of the tone. But cinematically, they're similar. So even though this is a miniseries, it's quite cinematic in what it's pulling from. It explicitly said, and I'm talking about Scott Frank, the maker, that uh, they were inspired by the biopic, which we're going to talk about when, when we get deeper into chess on our next episode in Pawn Sacrifice. And what they took from that film was that you didn't actually have to show the pieces that much on the board. You really had to focus on the emotion of the face. 
And that's why they wanted Anya Taylor-Joy is because she has those huge eyes that reveal so much emotion. And she has a knack for mannerism and timing of mannerisms, right? Her gestures, her pauses, her awkward pauses, her measured movements reveal so much and they're so on point all the time. Perhaps what I think a few people have some hesitancy towards is that her character is strange. It's a little icy, it's a little remote, and it's a little implacable. It's hard to penetrate. Like, who is she? What is she thinking? She's both stoic and candid and yet a mystery. And I personally like that. She was very enigmatic. And once again, they were pulling from the realm of film in which, I don't know if you've seen this, but Birth, which is by the director Jonathan Glazer who also did Under the Skin. And you think about Scarlett Johansson's character in that film, an alien, extraterrestrial, both human and not human. And Nicole Kimmon in Birth, they wanted this sort of frigid, mysterious persona. And so that was their main inspiration, both, they said, in terms of its cinematography and in terms of developing the character of Beth. So I, I found that really fascinating that they took so much from the world of cinema in this miniseries that even though it is a totally different form, it, its heart is cinematic. The very final scene of the whole miniseries is a handheld shot of Beth walking through a very gray Russian park. It's the first time they ever use handheld. The whole thing is tracking shots, it's crane shots, it's one-two takes, um, you know, still fixed shots. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted to give a sense that she'd come into her own. They wanted to be more raw and feel more intimate. And uh, it's just showing that they are constantly thinking about the medium. And that is also an allusion or homage to Ida, the, the brilliant, um, very, very harrowing uh, period piece by Powell Powellowski. I probably botched the name. Uh, Ida's I think you actually got it. Yeah. <laughs> beautiful black and white film. So uh, all over this thing, I was just loving all the references and it's very cinematic. Did you find it cinematic or did it, did it put you off in ways as someone who loves film? What were some of your reservations? What were some of your takes in this sense? So one thing about me, we might've actually should have brought up in the intro part, but I actually don't have a huge formal cinema education and I don't even have a gigantic, I have an appreciation for it, but I don't have a desire to necessarily go back and study all of the films of great directors and such and so forth. So I, I catch up with them when I can, but I am very attuned to the, just the emotionality of more modern films specifically. So I have a, I have a breadth of knowledge and a, a breadth, but not maybe as deep <laughs> as some would expect, especially not in foreign film, kind of like a, a little bit of a more of a blind spot for me as we get further back in time, just as a kind of a baseline here to set the stage. But for me, it's all about like the production value. I feel like I'm watching this from the perspective of my ex-wife, who I would recommend things to and, you know, isn't going to watch nearly the amount of content and amount of films or series that I'm going to. So she's going to have to pick and choose, right? She's that person who... If she falls in love with it, like something about it grabbed her, what would that be? And for me, it's the production value. It, it starts with like we talked about with cinematography, the way that the chess is depicted is it's crucial. It's vital to this film, to this series. You have to get the chess right because it, it, there's so much chess. If you get it wrong, then you allow people the opportunity to tune out in those moments. And then they start losing what it's about because you've, dropped their attention span. And so I love the fact that when I watch the chess be played, I don't know what's going on, man. I don't. 
I just don't know. I don't think you can. And I've watched a lot of chess stuff the last couple of weeks in addition to this. And it's pretty much all the same. Like you see pieces moving. You don't understand what is actually happening because unlike a sport like basketball or football or even a race, a race, you're either in front or you're not in front. Like you can visually immediately know the status of the game. Basketball, football, you have scoreboards. It's easy to tell who's winning and who's losing. Not the case with chess. Absolute no way can you really know in the act of filming a game where they're moving pieces back and forth because you can't slow it down and just, unless you pause and look at the board and then unpause, watch a move, pause again. And you also have the chess minded analytical brain to process what's happening and see the moves in advance and understand. It's just impossible for the everyday viewer. And I'm that guy. And so for me, I think what you describe makes perfect sense. It was about the character and everything else in the frame. I loved watching the pieces move occasionally and seeing the way they moved, but it's all about the mannerisms and the body language and the facial expressions that were happening. And that's what told me the crowd reactions, the little bits of dialogue, sometimes where somebody would tell you, oh, she's, you know, she's got him. Like I needed that. And they nailed that in a way that allowed me to feel like I knew what was going on, even though I really didn't. And the other visualization of chess part that really stood out to me and, and I think made this series great is we see it in the very beginning when she takes the pills and she starts to envision chess being played on the ceiling. It takes this and it blends a very typical period piece style of filmmaking and, and such with interesting CGI concept that you would see in like a blockbuster. And it's used sparingly enough that it doesn't get overdone and it is always just fascinating. Dude, my eyes would like bulge every time this happened. I was just like, <sighs> like I wanted to see it so much and they just gave me just enough little bits. And then, you know, in the final moment when she actually is able to do this without the use of drugs, or alcohol and she's completely coherent and sober and she does it in the final match and you see the crowd like what is she looking at they're like obviously reacting because she's looking at the ceiling but you just see those pieces moving and the score is just beautiful it builds like the sports films i described into a perfect inspirational like victory moment that is less about winning or losing but more about the character's state of mind in feeling like they have achieved the ability to perform at their best i should say and yes it results in a win in this case but it's getting her to the point where she is actually giving her all same thing in like a miracle like it and, and in warrior like they have to give their all and sometimes you're going to win, sometimes you're going to lose. Most times it's going to be a win because that's what we want to see in a movie. But like that feeling for me is captured throughout the series brilliantly in the production value all the way through. It's just, it's awesome. It is really awesome. And I think all of the actors in this film are great. I talked to you a little bit about it offline, how I was like being shocked every minute when she would meet a new guy. And so I'm like, that's Dursley from Harry Potter. And then I'm like, that's, you know, the guy from the Maze Runner. Like I was recognizing these people from other properties, but I think that they all did such a great job of nailing these various intricate personalities. They all love chess, but they all love it differently. And I think that was important for me too, because we usually see chess films depicted as just the crazy genius, like she is in this, the tortured genius. But we got to see other 
great chess minds that weren't all tortured and all addicted in the way that we see. And I think we needed that because without that, I think it just becomes another kind of dour downer of a story for most of it. You needed to see that people could be geniuses without that, or it just, it does, it can kind of bring you down. So everything about like the production value of how this thing goes down made me enjoy it more, even when I didn't love it minute to minute. Yeah, fair enough. And that conceit of the chessboard on the ceiling is beautifully rendered. As you said, the production value is high quality, but it it also comes back at the perfect moments to come full circle. And that moment in the final game, when Beth tilts her head back and Borgov is staring at her very quizzically, like, what the heck is she doing? And everyone in the crowd on the side is staring at her. Befuddled is just a brilliant awesome sports moment that's a sports trope when suddenly the athlete does something very bizarre very idiosyncratic and you don't quite know what they're doing but you know it's special and so you're like left out but you're also magnetized by it and then she comes in and makes the game-winning move after that of course i love that that moment it's probably one of my top five in the series and uh, there's a lot of moments i really love in this The other thing I do appreciate about this series is how well it reinvents the chess matches. So even showing faces wouldn't be enough because this is a seven-part miniseries, right? And so they knew that they couldn't be too technical or intricate about the chess match. And I actually teach middle schoolers chess. That's one of the things I do. So I'm pretty, you know, astute about chess, but I understand it doesn't translate well into cinema because you have to appeal to most people and most people don't know all the intricacies of chess especially elite chess i mean even basic things like forking most people wouldn't know and that's just to throw out a quick jargon term so you have to find a way to communicate what they're doing dramatically without ostracizing the viewer and they did so many things here i love my favorite tournament is a tournament between her and like you said newt from the blaze runner thomas brody Sangster, who's great in this as Benny Watts with his little dagger, very quirky character, his cowboy hat kind of vibe. He's shirtless. He's kind of a bad boy, kind of a nerd. I I really liked him. And a new male archetype we don't see so much, but I love the tournament when she finally beats him because they do the split screen stuff and they do it really well. The symmetry is beautiful. They have one scene where the camera comes in and pans down onto the board and suddenly each square on the board turns into a different micro image of the tournament. There's a ton of ingenuity going on here. One of the interesting trivia things behind the scenes is the famous master and teacher, uh, Pandolfini, who we'll talk about on the next episode with uh, Searching for Bobby Fischer, who is the character that Ben Kingsley is modeled after, the real life person, was the on-set advisor about how to make the chess interesting. So I just think that's a cool tie-in. But that ancillary thing aside, uh, this is a brilliant miniseries in making chess sexy, to throw it out there. It does. It makes chess sexy. And it made it immensely popular. It caused chess sales to skyrocket, which I love as a teacher. I teach chess, like I said, to middle schoolers, and most of my best students are female already, but it's great to see more encouraged to to come into chess because it still is like 75% male in my classes, and it shouldn't be. 
there is no discrepancy in skill set at all there. And so that's exciting too, because of the obvious implications of this narrative. It's the Queen's Gambit with the female lead ruling the world with chess. It's topical in that sense. And most of all, what I loved about this miniseries, especially on my second watch, was that Beth is our centerpiece. It's a traditional coming of age story. She has a lot of complexity. She's an orphan. She has addiction. She has a really interesting relationship with her adopted mother. There's some tragic things that continue to happen in each episode. But every single character we meet, besides maybe her adopted father, who's just kind of a villain, are really rounded characters that have their own minor arcs. Mr. Scheibel perhaps is slightly um, not shaded in fully, but he's one of the most lovable characters. And through her, he's shaded in. But her adopted mother is really complex. And the relationship that they create is something I've almost never seen. It's very mother-daughter, even though if it's not biological relationship, in which they they need each other for different reasons, right? Uh, the adopted mother is, I would say, a little more frivolous, right? Likes to likes the pleasures of life, like, likes a cocktail, likes dancing. She can't really understand Beth's intellectual needs and how she could be so preoccupied uh, with this obsession. But they still love each other and they still need each other. And, and uh, I mean, I could go character by character, but every single person here that's peripheral still has a ton of depth. Just to put one more out there, Harry Beltic, which is played by Harry Melling, right? The first big chess, let's say, star that she beats and who has a, a temporary romance ends up realizing that he's not going to be great at this and has to go through this both humbling and humiliating growth in which he goes into engineering school and works at the local market and becomes content with that. I think that was a profound character arc. And so this miniseries is excellent at at creating characters that you care about and that are complex. And I know I said I would just do one more, but one last one is Jolene. Jolene is a great character. She bookmarks this miniseries beautifully. So she's only in the first and seventh episodes, if I'm correct. She gets so much growth and she becomes such an important figure for her own arc. You're interested in her future in law as an attorney. You have empathy for her even stealing Beth's book because you know that it came out this really like emotional space and you love their relationship. She gives her the money to go to Russia when Beth turns down the the money that she doesn't want for her own ideological purposes. But man, I think that they really, really care about each individual. And that always is a testament to something that I gravitate towards. Yeah, I would agree that they do on most of them. I, I like the the characters in this show. And the whole thing is kind of capturing this moment that is a male chess dominated scene. And like you said, it still is to a point, but it is only dealt with and directly it's only i wouldn't say it's preached as a message so a lot of movies and and shows are kind of critiqued for preaching to an audience and being very heavy with their opinion of the way that something should be and we get a sense of what is going on throughout this but it's never like the entire focus of a single episode right and i like that so we see how the men react to her at first when she's playing chess. And we understand it. We see how other girls respond to her of the period and what their expectations would be. We see what it's like when she gets interviewed and the focal point of their questions and how that shifts. And so we we get to see her dealing with it without becoming a crusader against it. That wouldn't have been a thing that made sense in this series. Like that's not what she's about. It's not who she is. And 
you know, each of the men in her life, specifically those three, Benny, Henry, and Towns, the love interest. Again, they're like three different types of chess players, all very good. One of the things I love about them and I love about the show is they're not super flawed, okay? Like, they don't have to have a big problem. And I would have struggled with that because she's the one that has something to overcome. Like, I don't need them to have a big thing to overcome as well. Benny, when you first meet him, you start to wonder. You're like, is he going to do something bad? But, but nobody does that overly dramatic thing where Benny invites her up to New York and then seduces her. Benny actually says, no sex, sorry. Like, we're not going to let you do that until a certain point when it becomes mutual and, and understandable. But I love that about these three men and these three characters is that they don't turn into overdone archetypes of like angry men. And I think that that highlights the fact of like it can be a male dominated scene in society and we can very clearly see that that needs to change without it being vicious and without it being evil. It can just be an unfortunate way that society has developed and that we have not quite come to terms and dealt with yet. And and so I love that about it. The mother growing into this truly motherly and like friend role is awesome, like you talked about, but also is a contributor to the alcoholism. Like she eggs it on. And, and I think that that's important to see because parents do this, like real parents struggle with this. Like you want to be your kid's friend. So sure, have a beer with me. You don't know necessarily know the impact of that. And how that's going to affect she didn't know what she was doing before right then it became a, a regular thing and so you start to contribute and i know so many people growing up in the south specifically like you know their dads were giving them beer from the time they were 10 or 12 so you wonder why that's all they do on the weekends is go get drunk on the back of the pickup truck around a campfire it's what they knew and it was actually like encouraged in a way and some of them became alcoholics well there's responsibility to take there for the mother. And I and I like that it shows that because for me, I responded to that. Jolene was a tough one for me. I love the bookend on Mr. Scheibel because of the importance of that relationship and her falling in love with Chess. Another character that fits my male thing. I, I kept waiting for it the first two episodes. When is he going to abuse her? Like you see a young girl in the basement with this old man, you expect in this day and age, that's the story you're going to get. But that's not the story you get. And thank goodness, because I needed not to have that. And it is a beautiful ending when she, oh man, that, that was the moment that wrecked me is when she walks into that basement and finds that picture of the two of them together and sees all those clippings where he's been collecting them and clearly followed her career and had so much pride in her. That was important. And I like that about Jolene too, because that was important for a character to see that these people that were not part of her life still had cared about her and still had followed her all this time. Jolene felt a little more shoehorned into me, but I liked it. Um, well enough. And I think that it does bring out this great concept of like sacrifice. You know, Jolene gives up her freaking tuition money to do the thing that she's dreaming of because she cares enough and believes enough in Beth. There's a great scene where Beth says, isn't this your money for law school? And Jolene says, yeah, but you're going to win. And Beth's like, what if I don't? And she's like, it's still worth it. And that, that was another like, oh, that's the friendships I want to see. So I, I guess it does maybe work for me more than I thought. But yeah, I, I agree, man. All of the periphery characters here are really good. It's weird because like none of that stuff is my complaints about the whole series. It really is strong throughout. And I think that that's why so many people responded to it. I came to reconcile my 
appreciation and what I should have also noted about Jolene's character that you pointed out, I think she does feel a tiny bit shoehorned in. And I was aware of that from the get-go. But what I loved is whereas other things might shoehorn in today of character like Jolene because we need more diversity and representation, they went the extra mile still. So it did feel like it, right? But then as you noted, there was these extra details that they gave her and it showed that they weren't lazy about it and they weren't reductive about it. That, that makes it feel fake and gross. It, it was like, no, let's build a real character and care for this character and give her a psychology and give her... Uh, an emotional resonance. And like, by the end, I actually, especially on my second watch, really liked Jolene's character in that when she returned again, I, I totally understood her and what she meant to Beth and what that sudden arrival into the story precipitated for Beth's recovery and how essential she was and, and how interested we are as the viewer, not only is like her as a function of Beth, but her in her own life's trajectory as well. So I love that aspect. I also really was touched by the scene with Mr. Scheibel when she sees on the board all those pictures, man, that really hits hard. But all the things you say about the depiction of the male characters here is probably the second thing I really loved about this. And it's all, you know, all art usually has a message and it, it's trying to say something to the times, right? And there is so much teaching through our arts, especially in the cinema world, through negative representation or negative depiction of wrongdoing or this figure does bad, right? You see her in the basement, Mr. Scheibel, you're expecting the worst. You see her go with Benny to New York, you're expecting the worst. And I read some articles where they were upset because they didn't depict men as these awful beings. But I think this is even Are you serious. More... I did. Uh, Come on, people. So sadly enough. But, but, but what this is, it's, it's a corrective depiction. So I don't think it's necessarily in fantasy land, but let's just say it is hypothetically. Let's say that all men are nasty, right? Well, isn't it good to create corrective fantasies to show depictions of people being good? I mean, there's something profoundly edifying about that. And I, I mean, I think these are real characters. I've met people like Benny. I've, I think that what I love so much about this is instead of being a negative corrective, it was a positive corrective in every sense. It tried to show like what things could be. And it's very feminist, right? And a feminist in a new way, it gives her agency and it doesn't need to talk about it too much. It just says like, she is badass. She is self-assured. She is confident. She doesn't need to be like the other girls when they're like singing the songs of on the TV and she doesn't even need to sit with them in the cafeteria. Yeah, she, she has that moment where she's, you know, at the new school and she goes and sits at her own table. Does she sit there and sulk or is, does she have to fit in? No, she sits there poised actually. Starts a little quick conversation with the one other outcast character and asks like, what are the chess clubs here? She knows what she loves. I love that. She is an autonomous woman with agency throughout this uh, miniseries. And they don't try to pander to an easy, you know, proclamation of like, oh, look at this great depiction. They don't need to. It's more powerful and more, more potent because it says this is what should be. It, it's more transcendental. It's saying this is the way it should be. And we're just going to show it as it is. And I, I really appreciate it about about this. i just throw one more example in there before I pass it back to you is the administrators, the twins at her first major tournament. They are judgmental in ways, even if it's not really venomous, right? They have little slights and jabs like you're not 1800 plus chess player, which is the rankings. You can't play these people, which is logistical stuff, actually. It's bureaucratic policy that is gender irrelevant. Like, doesn't matter 
who she was, she probably wouldn't actually get permission to play in certain games. But they're shown in a slightly negative light. What do we get in the next episode? They're basically her, I hate this term, but groupies. They're her fans. They're supportive, right? It's just a generous, generous miniseries. It doesn't want to see people at their worst form. And I, I appreciated that a lot. Yeah, I, I agree. And I, I mean, I just, I, that's one of the things I like about it is because if we're going to have someone that follows a singular character through her life of addiction that is pretty downtrodden at times throughout this whole series, you don't need everybody else to be that way too. She's got plenty to deal with and get through as it is. We don't need to pile on to this character and make it some crazy unrealistic amount of trauma. She's got plenty already with the way that her parents died and growing up in the orphanage and the very realistic depiction of how those kids were given tranquilizers for years and how that could form an addiction in someone, you know, in a way that isn't insidious. Again, it's like, it's the norm. It's what they did to keep kids calm. They thought was right until they stopped doing it when the state said they couldn't, you know, that's a scene in there. They're like, well, we can't do it anymore. And so they stopped. So it doesn't feel like it's insidious. You always see that in other movies where it's like, we're doing it on purpose. (laughs) But you know, you see these little nods of like how people can become addicted to things and how their mindset and their obsessive nature of things can also do that. How social awkwardness and feeling like you're other than and you're alone can lead you down to that to try and find your place to be in the world and to keep your attention. I will say I had a couple issues with the depiction of what happened with her parents. I did not like at all the format of the only real information we get about them happens in these flashbacks at the first of every episode. And it is a massively big thing. At the end of the episode, we find out why the wreck that we see at the very beginning occurred that killed her mother and how she ends up in the orphanage. And it is humongous. Like her mom tries to kill them. Like that is gigantic stuff. And it's like, oh, that happened. And that's it. And it just drops it. I completely agree. Yeah. And you mentioned Amy Nicholson in Unspooled before, and that's her biggest grief with so much of film, so much of storytelling these days is when they have this detail that they purposely hold out that is manipulative. So when you want to use that term manipulative, that's where you use it, right? They could have given us that earlier. And they chose to do this very playful thing and withholding that. And it just wasn't enough. The flashbacks with the mother needed to be more dilated for the impact they had on our character. I completely agree. That was not flushed out enough for this. I think that is top three probably flaws of this miniseries for me. And I know we could talk so much about this, but we are getting on the three hour mark here. And this is a great conversation, but uh, I think that we uh, should try to wrap this up a bit. And I'm going to steal one more thing just from this one for Filling Film, just as an honor, as a nod for the cap. And I see you laughing, but I'm going to let you throw in your connecting point. So to take one scene, I'm going to pull for another one of your great tools and ask you, what would be your connecting point for the Queen's Gambit? It would definitely be the moment of her her winning in the end. I, I think that the series is too long. I think that it could have been easily a four-episode miniseries. I joked on Facebook, I was like, I was thinking the whole time, how do I condense this to a two-and-a-half-hour movie? But I don't think it would have worked. I think it could have been condensed into about a four-episode miniseries pretty strongly. Four hours, tighter would have been just premium for me. But the ending and the way that this thing wraps up is what I need because it takes me out on a high. And again, like I said, I don't care about being manipulated in a lot of ways because I want to have that feeling. And so when she's going up against Borgov, I simultaneously have issues, 
with the fact that it's just one win and she's actually one in three or one in two against him rather. So like, how do we celebrate her as a great when she really actually lost to 66% of her matches against this guy? But we like make it into this big deal that she finally beat him once. But I care so much about her success and I need this for her. I need her to overcome these things in this way, in this sober way. And I, and it's cheesy. Like you get to flash into the end of the you know, the stands, the the crowd, and you get to see all these people that showed up to cheer her on. You know, even Chloe, who was partially responsible for suckering her in to, you know, this relapse that caused her to fail so hard. And like, to me, like, I just, I need it. I need this character to have a win in that way. And I think that the series while it does go too long, it wraps up and ties up all of those bows outside of the whole mom thing. Every other thing in this is tied up in a way that is just beautiful and meaningful and strengthens the message of community is going to get you through addiction. Like you're not going to do it alone. She's not going to just get over it. She needs people to help. Benny talks about it throughout the series. Jolene helps her quote, get clean. Like you have to have that and you have to be willing to let those people help you. And then you get the win. You get the benefit of that. You can see what it, it's like when she's at her absolute peak. And even she doesn't know what that's going to be like because she doesn't really allow herself to get there and play sober at her best and it's just it's beautiful like everything about it the cinematic nature of the chessboard on the ceiling like we talked about and i think the orchestral score the lack of dialogue in the match between her and borgov and the fact that he gets up and he says it's your game take it the recognition from him in that moment i think is so so meaningful both from the male dominated perspective from the russians or dominant perspective but like it's a hundred percent them and, and the entire series like acknowledging her greatness and, and allowing her to have earned it. It's not just given to her because of talent. It's given to her because of how she performs and the holistic view of who she is as a person in that performance that we care so much about. So the ending is just absolutely beautiful. And I love the like final, final scene like you talked about, because to me, it nods back to Bobby Fischer and the fact that you know, we have a character who Bobby Fischer is known for having done this, gone and playing in the park with these people. And it, it takes the game from all we've seen is like these elite chess worlds of America and Russia. And this brings it all back to what the series kind of was meant to do, I think, which is inspire people to go check out this game of chess in a lot of ways. And like what I think it did do, whether it meant to or not, this is where most people are going to do. They're going to play chess at home. They're going to play chess on their phone with somebody or on their computer or sitting in a park, you know, and it, it brings it down to a level that is not just us worshiping an all-star, but us understanding this is a game that we can enjoy too. And so uh, it's just, I think it just wraps up stupendously. And I, and I hope there's not like a season two. <laughs> I, I hope there actually isn't as well. I, I think it ends perfect. It's self-contained series and great connecting point scene. Even if it is, of course, the climax. And so very obvious, it, it had to be used. And so I was actually going to use it, but I, I have another one too. I, I love that final game with Borgov too, because we get the great sports. I'm not going to call it a montage, but we get that kaleidoscopic support system in which we get the scenes after where she gets to call Benny and the people in New York. Uh, we get, uh, you know, her being cheered on by Jolene listening 
And her, her moment uh, when she finds out the news is, is just great. I love when you get that, that moment in sports, right? Whether it's someone, people watching on TV or everyone gathered around some big jumbotron or something where you get the reaction shot. Those are just always crowd pleasers and they always hit right if they're done well and it was done very well. So it, in a very tidy way, brought this all full circle with all those characters right there. I do also love the scene with the park now that you talked about it a bit more. Even after the second time, I was like, well, this doesn't feel quite proper. I'm just, this is my first response. Like the, the music work, the handheld shot was awesome. As I, as I mentioned, uh, the acting was great. The the Russian men, the old Russian men were, were amazing in the in the scene and her, her dynamic with them was amazing. But I was like, we never saw her in a park. We never saw her deal with you know, like outside crowds, like searching for Bobby Fischer a lot. Why are we here? What do these people mean? But I get it. It's bringing back to its roots on a more historic, bigger level. It's totally aware that it's this big symbolic gesture to the world of like, let's bring chess back. Let's have this be a launch for chess and particularly for getting more women into chess and showing that they belong. And I, I think it really works and resonates on that level. And I had to hear you talk about it for it to, to really, really hit for me, but in, in now it does. And so I thank you for that. My connecting point is something you already brought up and it's the basement scene where she sees uh, Mr. Scheibel's board with all those pictures because is reticent and also kind of taciturn and distant as he is, right? We don't quite know too much about him. He is such a powerful force that lurks in the background of the whole miniseries, right? Every time she does lose, she has a flashback to him teaching her that, you know, how to, how to take defeat with dignity. And you see the, the importance of that. You see the importance of when Borgov accepts defeat. Or I love the scene when she beats the Russian with the crazy zany Albert Einstein-like white hair. He was great. That was an amazing moment when, when, he, when he tells her, you were the best player I've ever played. Like, she has that exchange where she says, oh, I studied all your old great games. And she, he said, I've studied every game you've done this tournament. I just love the, the mutual respect that they showed. It's just, it's so heartwarming to see and so genuinely portrayed that it really hits you. But throughout this, you really have this lonely, sad kind of figure. Mr. Scheibel is in the underworld, right? And he wasn't so warm to her, especially at first. He was a bit draconian, actually and dismissive but he he opened up to her and you know he's a little surly perhaps a little crotchety definitely emotionally held back but he still gave her a gift of chess he was there to play with her he did open up enough to show her this thing that changed her life that transformed her world and i think that's a great lesson to teach that to people too who haven't found that yet that maybe you will find the one thing that's going to spark your your true calling right it might not be chess but whatever it is it might be out there and whatever mentor figure it is that helps you out to be able to recognize that and pay reverence to that as she does it's just very very powerful and yeah so that's definitely the scene that that really hit for me the most out of every scene throughout this and so for the last point is, is about bringing it down to four episodes i know we said we talk about it but it's like subjective difference of brevity versus if it's more like decadent and long some people might think it's seven episodes is a bit superfluous i loved every second i wouldn't scratch anything but i totally understand because it could technically be taken down and you can get the same story arc you would lose details of certain characters i liked all the characters i liked all the nuances and it just comes down to what you're in the mood for, how much time you want to allot to something, and whether you want to uh, saturate yourself, right, and really sink into something. 
and whether you think something's worthwhile for that or not. And it's a sliding scale for each individual. And that's a very fair assessment, right? The good thing is it's not longer. So I applaud them for going seven, which is not a normal number and not stretching it to 10 because I would have really struggled if we were just seeing more tournaments in the middle and more relapses and more ups and downs constantly of the character. Like that would have been more problematic, honestly, for me than wanting to see it a little shorter. So I, I do appreciate that we didn't overdo it in that way. Absolutely. So on that note, I think that... Uh, speaking, of a, <laughs> uh, speaking of long... Yeah, speaking of pushing it past the uh, threshold of patience for your audience, let's definitely wrap this up. So it was a great conversation. And we both went down, as we noted in the very beginning, wormholes as we do getting into our preparation for this episode on chess and watched a ton of chess films. So Aaron and I are going to do a follow-up episode in which we are going to go over Pawn Sacrifice, Computer Chess, Queen of Catwe, The Coldest Game, and Searching for Bobby Fischer. So we definitely went on chess binges and we are steeped in this world right now. It's fresh on our minds. And so it's going to be a very, very rapid fire episode, I foresee, in which we really just go film by film and hit the main beats. It's not going to be as immersive, but I think we're going to be able to uh, recapitulate the world of chess. So without any more to say, thank you so much for coming on. We talk about your stuff so much, but I always want to allow my guests to plug all of the great things that you have created, all your platforms. Absolutely. So yeah, you can find the podcast Feelin' Film, that's F-E-E-L-I-N apostrophe F-I-L-M. Anywhere you listen to your podcasts, we're on Spotify, we're anywhere you can find it. Just punch it in. Luckily, we've made it over five years into the Google search bar to where if you use the apostrophe, we're going to be the first thing that comes up. Feelinfilm.com houses all of our episodes. You can listen to them online or find them there, as well as a pretty big archive of written work that I used to do. I've kind of stopped doing that now in favor of more podcasting. We put out a couple episodes a week, usually. One is FF+. Plus. That's where we do the short, succinct, like non-spoiler versions of new films that are coming out. And we just tell you real quick a couple of things we like, if there's anything we don't like, and whether or not we recommend it, and where you can find it. And then the bigger episode each week is the one where we do our deep dive and we go into full spoiler territory and you should have seen it. And there's, like Paul said, a gigantic archive as well you can go back to and enjoy. So I always tell people if you're interested in checking out my show to find a film that you love and go listen to that episode because 90% of our episodes we've loved and you're going to get kind of the best experience of what we can give you. Uh, so that's what I would say. You can find me on Feelin' Film at Twitter. It's at Feelin' Film. Uh, you can find me in Facebook, same way. It's, I think, Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E is the part you can put in, or Aaron White. You can find me. Uh, there's a Feelin' Film Facebook group you can search for. We'd love to have you come join that. It's full of people who are all the way like hardcore foreign cinema criterion collectors, cinephile style, all the way to just your people who do nothing but love the MCU. Uh, it's a breadth of people. It is a great place for discussion. It is way more kind and open to differing opinions than most places. We don't moderate with a hard hand, but we keep the tone of the conversation to where it really is a discussion group. We expect people to come and to talk and to engage with each other. And it has been a beautiful experience so far. And we would love to have all your listeners come join us there and be a part of that too. 
And if you like video games, you can find my one season cool little offshoot podcast. It's called The Games We Love Podcast. And, you know, it's fun. That's all I can tell you. If you like games, you should check that out. It's got some cool episodes, too. That's awesome. I didn't know you had a video game podcast. So I'm going to add that onto my Apple podcast list. And uh, I just reiterate everything you said. Check out Filling Film. We name drop it all the time. Join the Facebook group if you like an open positive discussion about like he said everything from the mcu to criterion films and so thank you so much for coming on Uh, it was a blast thank you for having me